0: When True Detective Season 1 released on HBO in 2014, it became a cultural phenomenon and changed the landscape of television forever. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast, and today we're going to be doing a heavily requested episode from so many of you all, a season one retrospective of True Detective, which I think is possibly the greatest standalone season of television of all time. A couple of the seasons of Breaking Bad, of course, are phenomenal. There's a couple of insane seasons of of Mad Men, also Chernobyl, which came out a few years ago I thought was absolutely breathtaking and, and outstanding, but in terms of a narrative story, The filmmaking, the acting especially, I think True Detective Season 1 is a really incredible piece of narrative fiction that is such a rarity on the small screen. Don't forget Sopranos and The Wire. Those are two great examples of not only incredible acting and storytelling, but terrific writing, dialogue, story arcs for these great Mm -hmm. characters that... Still, these are some of the best shows to ever live. But for just one season of television, this might be the best all-time. It's on that list for sure. It's so masterfully made, so wonderfully written. It's such a unique and creative idea. And we have incredible powerhouse performances from household names Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. It was so incredible. What a duo. What a casting to pair these two guys together with these two different characters. Now, a quick synopsis of True True Detective Season 1. It follows two combative Louisiana State police detectives as they hunt and catch a serial killer in the 1990s and early 2000s while also reflecting back on the case years later during interviews when another killing crops up, insinuating that either they never solved the case and that one of them may be a suspect. And this is before HBO Max was a thing. Yes, <laughs> it was <laughs> just HBO. HBO. Which is probably why, again, with Sopranos and name recognition for TV, why Warner Brothers decided to go the route of HBO Max. I don't think that was a great idea for their streaming platform because it took away the catalog of reference for the average movie listener, or, I mean watcher, of Warner Brothers and HBO being the same thing in their huge movie catalog. Yeah, and this is back, I mean, they could have. should have just been Warner Brothers Plus or something. Is what it should have been. But HBO, HBO was the name recognition because HBO had solidified its status as the preeminent premium channel uh, that for television with making great independently produced TV shows and um, Warner Brothers produced TV shows by HBO Max as well. And a lot of really good uh, TV movies would come out on HBO, especially in the 2000s after a few of their big hits really solidified their status and gave them money and respect. And then you started to get bigger names, uh, working with HBO. Now, it was super hard to get celebrities of this status into a TV show at this day. Like Nowadays, celebrities and big names are doing TV shows left and right. I would say not just celebrities. I would say, say celebrities, A-list actors. A-list actors, okay, you're right. A-list actors is what I mean, like super big actors. They were only basically doing film, and it was kind of considered a step down for them to do television, especially if they were so big in film. But what made this exciting for both Uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson was that it was a commitment of only one season because a lot of big film stars they don't want to commit to seven seasons of a TV show that's a lot of time that's a lot of films that they would have to turn down filming a a show on this scale takes about six months so that's a huge chunk of time in their schedule a person could make could lead two movies they could be the lead actor in two movies in that amount of time so it it was it restricted what actors could do if they were film stars and so, it only they were only able to get these big names because of the small schedule and commitment that it was going to be for a TV series. And now, you see the advent of miniseries explode after this. I mean, miniseries were coming out still here and there, but like, it wasn't that often. Band of Brothers Band is, is probably Brothers. the big, best example of a great miniseries. Yeah, Twin Peaks by David Lynch, but then he ended up doing more seasons, but at first it was just that one season. And so... It was so rare, but now it, we're seeing miniseries every month. New streaming app comes out with them, and they're so common now. But it really was because True Detective was so incredible and was so successful. It basically sparked this desire for audiences to uh, consume high-quality co- high storytelling in the TV format, but not for six or seven seasons, for maybe one or two seasons. And it, I think it allows the filmmakers and writers to make it a condensed story much more powerful. And just adds so much more detail and richness to the characters, to the story. So, I think there are so many advantages to miniseries, especially if it's just one and done season. You don't have to commit too much time as a viewer to it, you don't have to wait over like year after year after year for seasons to come out. Now, on IMDb, this show entirely is rated an 8.9. That's including all three Whoa. seasons. And season one is actually, and this is also a top-rated TV series on IMDb at number 38. Season one, specifically on Rotten Tomatoes, is 87% critic score and 99% audience score and It also won five Emmys in season one. All the Emmys that it's won was just in the season. It won for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series for Carrie Joji Fukunaga, Outstanding uh, Casting for a Drama Series, Outstanding Makeup, Outstanding Cinematography, as well as Outstanding Main Title Design. So five Emmys won entirely for the show for all three seasons, all in season one. Uh, The episodes averaged 11.2 million viewers, making it the most watched first season of an HBO original series since Band of Brothers back in 2001. In the first season, some more fun facts, Matthew McConaughey plays an atheist while Woody Harrelson plays a Christian. In reality, their worldviews are reversed, McConaughey being a Christian and Woody Harrelson being an atheist. This, is the, this first season was entirely shot on film, and series creator Nick Pizzolatto wrote the first season by himself without any input from a writing staff, which is very unusual for a major American television series. And we're going to break this whole show down in terms of the production, talk about the directors, break down the characters, and then we're going to do the thematic elements as well as going episode through episode by episode. This is going to be a super long analysis Breakdown. Get um, comfy. Um, True Detective, <laughs> I hope you got a long drive or you got a long leg day at the gym today because it's going to be a good one. And I'm, sh- I'm honestly shocked it didn't win anything at the Golden Globes because not only was McConaughey's performance so remarkable, but the show was so unique. And I'm, I'm surprised it walked away empty-handed at the Globes because it won so many Emmys. And that, this, this was during the time of the You know, He had come out with True Detective, Interstellar, Dallas Buyers Club, and he had the small role in Wolf of Wall Street in a matter of a year and a half, and it was in like for being such a big star already, ready. But for his career to make such a big shift in terms of how the culture and um, population saw him as an actor, it was like night and day. To Don't be, forget, two thousand twelve, he was in Mud. Mud's great too. Also, The Lincoln Lawyer, in two thousand eleven, was excellent too. But but I mean, he it was a monstrous year and a half for him to be part of, to win the Oscar to be in the giant Nolan movie, and to be in the most talked about TV show of the year. And I will just say, off the bat, I think that McConaughey's performance as Russ Cole in True Detective is one of the great performances of the century in film and TV. It's really stunning. There's so many layers to it. It's so complex. I've never seen anything like it. And he put in everything he had as an artist and a performer into this role. He gave it 150%, and you can really see that. And even if, even, like, it's even when you compare it to great film roles, Oscar-winning film roles, like, this performance is so insanely good. It's hard to even put anything up against it in film and TV. And so I think it's an all-timer of just acting performances. And it's not to say that Woody also isn't equally as good just for different reasons in a lot of different ways. And we're going to break down the characters eventually in a little bit. But let's start with Carrie Joji Fukunaga, who might be the most under-talked-about directors in Hollywood. I mean, he just came out with the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, which was so well made. He got that job after making two miniseries, basically, now, because he he did this in 2014, and then he did, uh, what was it, Maniac in 2000? With Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. Is that what it's called, Maniac? Something like that. Manic? Hold on, let me me double-check. Oh, what's what's it called? It was on FX. I can't remember what it was called. But Fukunaga... Is a really talented filmmaker. I've been a fan of his for a long time. He did uh, an adaptation of Jane Eyre with Fassbender and Wazikowski, which was really good. Man- maniac, maniac, yeah, I was right, <laughs> maniac, <laughs> maniac. That's <laughs> what happens when you just sometimes don't get every note that you want to put into an episode. So yeah, he was in that great. He directed that main <laughs> right, right, that right. great series that starred Jonah Hill and Emma Stone back in two thousand. And what was that, 18? Yeah, that was a while ago yeah, for and, Netflix. But Jane Eyre, that adaptation, it's really beautifully filmed, and uh, the the directing is just phenomenal. That's the first thing I'd ever seen that he did, and I was very impressed with what I saw. And then he did Beasts of No Nation, and this was an early nec- Netflix film starring Idris Elba, who was robbed by the Academy. He got no awards recognition, I think because the Academy and the other many of the other awards um, institutions – didn't have respect for Netflix at that time because it was it really was one of the first major Netflix original films back in 2015. Yeah, so this is early days Netflix streaming. They were beginning to make their they are beginning to make content. So this is like when House of Cards was beginning up production. Shows like that were starting and building the audience for Netflix originals. But Beasts of No Nation flew so under the radar and not only is Idris Elba phenomenal in it, but Kari fukunaga Kerry Joji Fukunaga is his directing is pitch perfect and deserved a lot of accolades. He deserved to get nominations too for directing as well. And then he got True Detective. So I was already a big fan of his when True Detective came out. And when I learned, when I read up on True Detective before its premiere, and you learned that Fukunaga directed every episode. When I heard that, I was very excited because that's a rarity for TV. You'll see it happen more so nowadays. David Lynch famously did it with Twin Peaks, directing every episode with his partner. But with with generally, 99% of the time with TV shows, there's a person who's the showrunner, creator, and they will oversee the production of the entire series of a show. They'll hire directors to basically continue the same kind of visual um, vis- visuals and tone for the filmmaking and style of directing. And so it's very, very rare for one director to oversee every episode as a director. I think some good examples are probably Martin Scorsese with Boardwalk Empire. He, was a, he wasn't he was the showrunner specifically, but he directed the first episode. We have David Fincher with Mindhunter, who directed the first episode, a few here and there, but he's the showrunner, yeah. but he was kind of producing the whole show. We have Reed Morano with The Handmaid's Tale. She kind of set up the tone and aesthetic of that film, of that show, directing the first couple episodes as well, and acting as a showrunner and producer for that series as well as with uh, other producers and showrunners as well. So yeah. no, it's, it's a great point to make that Carrie doing this all by himself in terms of directing every single episode as well as directing every episode of Maniac is really impressive as well because it's so much time to make a movie but 10 episodes of an intense series like these like this or Maniac that's a lot of work yeah and you can really see how it makes a difference because a good example is a good example is Mindhunter and House of Cards because David Fincher also directed the first episode of House of Cards and he directed a couple other episodes throughout the seasons, but you can you can tell the difference when he's directing and when someone else is directing. And the other directors, I'm sure, are they're all extremely talented people and artists and deserve all their jobs. But there's only one David Fincher, and the way he directs a scene, the way he moves the camera, the way he decides what to do, it's incredible. And there's so much skill and detail and talent that goes into that. That when someone else is try- just trying to duplicate what he would do, it doesn't feel right. And you can, you, I personally can notice, and I'm sure you can too. Like, you notice, like, oh, this is a good episode, but David Fincher didn't direct this. But still, <laughs> so it's hard to keep that visual tone and style present throughout an entire season of television when it's not the director. So that's what really made a difference with the show, where the consistency of the directing is a strength, as well as the writing, because just like Fukunaga directing every episode, Nick Pizzolato directs. Pizzolato! P- it, he's American. Nick Pizzolato! Uh, Nick, Nick Pizzolato. I'll, I'll say it American style. Nick Pizzolato. Il <laughs> uh, Nick Pizzolato wrote every episode by himself. Now, again, with television shows, even if there's one person credited as the writer of an episode of television, it is written by a writer's room. There will be a writer's room, a team works on the entire season and then one person will get credit for this episode one person will get credit with that episode they'll like oversee like a bulk of that writing that particular episode but the group is helping write every episode that's just how crediting is they're not going to credit 16 writers for every episode of tv so they'll just credit one but tv shows are written by writers rooms so this is a rare example where one writer wrote every episode and one director directed every episode and that is such a rarity in television it's rare for fukunaga's career too because he's been involved with the screenplays and writing processes of everything he's directed pretty much including no time to die maniac the alienist he also helped write the screenplay for it back in 2017 that's right he was originally gonna helm it uh, he wrote beasts of no nation as well as sin nombre and everything he's pretty much worked on except for true detective in terms of directing. So it's really interesting to see that this show and Jane Eyre he did not write. But uh Yeah, yeah it's not but usually awesome. for a director who likes to be part of obviously directors are helping with the story and giving tips and suggestions on what they think their artistic vision will give best representation through the screenplay obviously they're involved in that process but it's rare for fukunaga to not really be involved with the screenplay but i think that's one of the great strengths of this show is that you have a consistent director and a consistent screenwriter throughout the entire series and He's such a great filmmaker, and this show is really masterful in terms of the production of what went into every single episode. It did, hadn't really been done this well before. Obviously, Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, those shows are so well made, but I think this upped the ante in terms of the cinematic quality brought to a TV series, and then you're throwing in these super famous and highly talented A-list actors to boot, because obviously we love Brian Cranston and James Gandolfini and Idris Elba who came from these great shows, but they weren't huge A-list actors at the time yet. They became A-list actors through these shows, but to have these super famous, very talented lead actors come in and take on this role is really exciting for viewers to be like, oh, they're going to be in a TV series. This is really interesting, and to see an A-lister do that is awesome. And this is a time when digital filmmaking was really coming out in a big way, and on TV People were running towards digital cameras because they were becoming so high quality and easy to work with. Cheaper shooting television. It's expensive. They get, they have to shoot quickly. And it's easier to shoot digitally than on film. Shows like Breaking Bad shot entirely on film. And it looks great. But what Fukunaga brought was this incredible, like you said, cinematic tone, the cinematic style of filmmaking that... I hadn't seen on television before and it was really breathtaking to see this kind of visual imagery on the small screen also shot in 35 millimeter film makes all the difference in the world you are restricted with digital with film as opposed to digital where you can just keep running the camera all you want which is why Fincher shot House of Cards digitally why he shot Mindhunter digitally and so this is when digital was really taking the foreground the forefront of filmmaking on the small screen but I thought it was just so great that Fukunaga was like, we're going to stick to film and make it as visually strong and cinematic as possible. And I think that made all the difference in the world. And I had never seen anything that incredibly looking for filmmaking on TV before. Uh, McConaughey filmed that entire, all of the interview sequences filmed in one day. And it was over 40 pages of dialogue, of just dialogue, which is incredibly impressive, especially when you factor in. How good the performance is in those sequences. And specifically, those scenes are very philosophical yeah. and metaphorical, as well as everything that Cole says in this goddamn <laughs> show, whether it's past or present. So it's really <laughs> terrific. Now, we know that this show is based on, a, obviously, a serial killer in these occult killings and cult organizations, sacrifices, and these odd imagery. Was this based on real events? Was True Detective Season 1 in Louisiana... Based on true events. And it's possible, it's not 100% confirmed, but during the series' first season, Nick Pizzolato told fans who were trying to piece things together to do an internet search for Satanism preschool in Louisiana. The results, the story of the Hosanna Church child abuse scandal in Ponchatoula, Louisiana. A group connected with the church used its facilities for a series of crimes against children and animals. With its leader and former pastor, Louis David LaMonica, claiming in his confession that the rituals were service of satanic worship. In season one, Rust and Marty investigate a ritualistic murder that has connections to a church and the local government. So it seems like maybe there was some inspiration behind there. Yeah, it sounds interesting. And Pizzolatto obviously wrote this entire thing. He was actually a screenwriter on AMC's The Killing. Remember that show? Yeah, that was an awesome show. And um, Joel, what's his name? I love that. Joel Kinnaman. Yeah. The Swedish actor. Excellent show on on AMC. Also a murder mystery about two detectives trying to track down a killer. With a female lead detective with an accent. It's the cliche. (laughs) That's the trope. (laughs) Gotta have an accent somewhere. (laughs) And that was set in Seattle, right? Uh, I can't remember. It was, it, was very always it was raining a lot. It was always raining. And so he credits that show with giving him a glimpse of the inner workings of the television industry. Pizzolatto grew up increasingly dissatisfied with the series' creative direction and left two weeks into the staff writing sessions for its second season. This is where he began work on True Detective, which was intended to be a novel. But once the project took definite form, Pizzolatto thought through the narrative shifts time and frame and perspectives made it more suitable for television. He pitched an adaptation from May to July 2010, and he developed six screenplays, including an early 90-page draft of the True Detective pilot script. Pizzolatto secured a development deal with HBO for a potential pilot series shortly thereafter. He wrote a second True Detective script soon after his departure from the killing, thanks to support from company... And manager, Anonymous Content, which ultimately produced the show and developed the project in-house. So that's why the Anonymous Content logo is seen at every episode. By April 2012, following a heated bidding period, HBO commissioned eight episodes of True Detective with a budget of 4 to five million per episode. Pizzolatto did not hire a writing staff because he believed a collaborative approach would not work with his isolated novelistic process and that a group would not achieve his desired result. After working alone for about three months, the final copy of the project script was 500 pages long. He also was the person who hired Kari Joji Fukunaga. Pizzolato narrowed his search from originally choosing Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. So he was originally going to helm every episode. He dropped out, and then he Pizzolato moved on to Kari Joji Fukunaga. Fukunaga was formally appointed as director after Inyaritu pulled out of the project due to other filming commitments and so in preparation for his work on the series Fukunaga spent time with a homicide detective of the Louisiana State Police's Criminal Investigations Division to help an accurate depiction of 1990s homicide detective work Fukunaga recruited Adam Arkapa director of photography of Top of the Lake which is a fantastic miniseries uh, set in New Zealand directed by Jane Campion starring Elizabeth Moss. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. He was the cinematographer for every episode, which is also pretty rare for TV to have the same consistent DP. He also shot amazing Australian films Animal Kingdom and Snowtown, which made Fukunaga uh, loving the work, made him want to hire him. So Pizzolatto hired Fukunaga. Fukunaga hired the cinematographer. It's pretty incredible stuff. Something that's really, I think so well done in the show that doesn't get a ton of limelight is the hair and the makeup because the story is told nonlinearly. The most common present most common timelines in the show are the present timeline where Cole and rust are being interviewed by those two detectives, as well as going back to the past and seeing their partnership and investigation in the 1990s into the early two thousands until they're split because of the fair the affair that uh, Rust has with Marty's wife, which was the last time they spoke to each other, it shows their investigation of these mysterious murders and these occult murders in Louisiana as they're together. And then there's some other time periods here and there, but it seems like the hair makeup did a terrific job creating the looks and aesthetics for the characters in this nonlinear storytelling with these actors and actresses who are stagnant age, obviously, because they're just filming this in six months. And so... I think they did a great job de-aging or, or present-day aging the characters back for the past timelines when they're investigating the 1990s. Whether it's Woody Harrelson, Matthew McConaughey, Michelle Monaghan, and then present timeline aging them up, where it's we have Woody Harrelson looks like he's put on a couple of pounds. Maybe he has a little fluff going on underneath his suit, some some sort of uh, he's extra, definitely got he's definitely wearing extra cushion. padding. Yeah, but he seems like he also put on an extra few pounds because you can see it in his face for sure. But also the the things that marty goes through where he's like middle aging he's like losing his hair and then eventually by the time we're in the present day timeline his hair is completely gone basically he's just accepted being bald and then we have rust who was very well put together in the past timeline clean cuts, but then in the present day timeline, he is just long-haired and a ponytail, this mustache and just a mess drinking beers all day. And you can see not only has he aged, but he's aged so much faster and so much worse than Marty because of the alcohol that he's been consuming on a day-to-day basis and the self-loathing and nihilism that he's probably a part part of his life every single day. So you can see the toll that alcohol has had on his eyes, on his face, on his complexion. Ripping cigarettes all day. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. Smoking cigarettes all day is well I think there's like maybe 50 cigarettes were smoked on camera for by McConaughey which is or shown in the show which is awesome because obviously cigarettes are bad for you they kill they're terrible but the aesthetic is so excellent in film and important because it's realistic yeah people smoke uh, and Marty even says to Rust, looks like father time hasn't been kind to you because he it looks like he's aged 10 years older and so I would say there are three different rust looks and there's really two Marty looks so the first rust look he has thick dark full head of hair his hair is much darker at this point in time um brush to the side then the second rust look his hair is much shorter it seems dark still um it's not as full it's definitely thinning and then rust three he has this long wispy very thin hair it's getting gray it's getting light um he has this he has facial hair but it's messy and it's not clean and just he just looks like a different person and he seems to have not cared at all what he looks and how he presents himself to be at all. And if, to grow your hair that long, it takes years. So he hasn't even cared what his hair looks like, honestly. And then Marty's just the two hair. He has like medium length and it's thinning in the beginning, but he does a comb over to try and hide that hairline. Well, in the er, yeah. in the 90s, it's thicker. It's thicker. It's, then, no, no, then, yeah, it's thicker. And then the 2000s, yeah. In the 2000s, in the near the end of the case and when yeah. he's about to get divorced, it's thinning. He's like looking in the mirror. He's getting fatter. Or a little, well, yeah. not fatter. He's getting a little chunkier. Yeah. And he's getting my size, yeah. <laughs> no, but he, it's 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 he's still thin hair in the, in the in the in the younger version. He's doing a comb over to kind of hide his hairline, which is clearly on its beginning to leave. But it's on its, but it's still but it's there. Still it's still thicker. <laughs> so there's three so, hairless So what they did a good job is they didn't just give Woody a new hairline. So they worked with the hairline he has in real life, which is very thin and not much hair there. But it's still like he still has hair like at his crown. And so they they did a great job with the hair of basically replicating his hair what it looked like at that age right because rather than give him like a perfect lineup you know a perfect full head of hair they kept it like it was thinning at that age and then the next two woody's marty's i mean like you said getting thinner and then he just keeps it short clean cut accepted it he's not trying to hide it anymore because in the opening he doesn't pull his hair back ever he's doing a comb over to kind of hide the hairline in a way because what he's always had like yeah. thinning hair since he's gotten into the zeitgeist of film and, and tv mm-hmm. i mean even if you think of white man can't jump he's got like a thinning thinning hairline a maturing yeah. hairline yeah. in that movie and he's yeah. really young in that film like probably in his mid-30s now it's gonna be remade it was remade it's getting remade yeah it already came out dude what, what is it i'm pretty sure what? what no no they're filming white man what, can't what, jump jack Harlow? It's i didn't thought it was out. done didn't come out what are, you, what are you smoking? Let me see. How I many... saw a trailer for it. A trailer? Yeah, oh, it well, comes out in May. Yeah, it didn't come out. We said they're still filming. They're done filming. It's in the can. How's the trailer? It's, it looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it looks unfunny, boring, <laughs> meh. Has Is there Jeopardy? Is Jeopardy in it? I don't think so. It, has oh no- it looks nothing like what they captured in the first film. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They don't even care. They just remake everything. Anyways, but that's not what we're talking about because we're talking about the incredible first season of True Detective. But so speaking of White Men Can't Jump in Woody. Woody and McConaughey both are famous for being so funny, so charming, personable guys, but also they're famous for being famous best friends. Like, they're pals. They've worked together a few times. They are super tight, and they smoke doobies all the time together. Yeah. I'm sure. (laughs) uh, Zach Galifianakis, he had McConaughey on Between Two Ferns. He said, "How much was the marijuana budget on True Detective?" But it's a testament to how good they are at acting because in the show, Rust and Marty couldn't get to, can't get along at all. You couldn't pay them to get along. Not until the, the last episode. I, well, yeah, till the very get, last they moment. They get along in the last episode. Twenty years in. Yeah, <laughs> but what I'm talking about like. For most of the show, yeah, they no. can't stand each other. Marty especially can't stand Rust, and Rust just can't stand anyone. So it's a real testament to their acting to see how how, how much they butt heads and how they can't mesh at all, even though in real life they're best buds. So it's, 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 and it's a great setup for having these two famous guys who are famous best friends play these two detectives. I think McConaughey—so McConaughey signed on first. Petzlato wanted him to play Marty because he had just done The Lincoln Lawyer. And Marty, he says, kind of has a similar feel to McConaughey's character in Lincoln Lawyer. But McConaughey, reading the script, was like, I want to play Rust. That's the really fascinating role to me, and I feel like I can nail it. And so Pizzolatto agreed to that. And then McConaughey recommended hiring Woody Harrelson to play Marty. So that's how they got on the jobs. Can't wait to talk about those characters. But let's talk Mm -hmm. some more about the production elements of this show. Mm -hmm. Specifically, obviously, Louisiana is the filming location of true detective it was shot partially though in Arkansas and oh, no, it was originally going to shoot in Arkansas, but Pizzolatto later chose to film in Louisiana to take advantage of the state tax incentives and the area's distinctive landscapes. And I think they did a great job capturing Louisiana, not just the major cities or towns, but also these vast landscapes, these swamps, these long highways and, and the kind of vegetation that grows there. I thought it, this film, this show looks terrific and we've driven through Louisiana, we stayed in New Orleans, so it was kind of just reminded of like driving on those highways a lot. Yeah, there's something just so unique about the, the plant life there, the trees there, the swamps, the environments. There's really nothing like it in the other states in the country, and so it's a really special environment. I think most notably, Steve McQueen filmed remarkable shots of Louisiana in 12 Years a Slave, and it's really beautiful stuff there. Um, it's a great landscape and I think it worked really well for the show because it gave it a unique look as opposed to what we've usually seen in southern states on TV especially because you might recognize it. I'm assuming they shot Django in Louisiana because they did it yeah looked very similar yeah. especially the houses like it seemed like a Django was all old, over an yeah. old house like that Childress is living in Errol Childress the serial killer his home seems like it used to be maybe a plantation home 200 mm. years ago because the Tuttle family which we'll get into eventually the, the Tuttle cult and the Tuttle family and how Errol Childress is connected to them they've been running louisiana for over 200 years so you can assume they were plantation owners And the house that errol lives in seems looks like a plantation home and red dead redemption 2 has a lot of similar environments there's like a louisiana-esque city and landscape in a major portion of the map of that game and it's just very reminiscent of what you would see in louisiana and i think looks great this show has terrific opening title sequences oh yeah and i think that it's kind of like the MO of a, of a studio, we're going to make a show, but before we even get into it, we need to figure out the opening title sequence because <laughs> it seems to be that's something very creative that they are pushing whenever a show gets created. I mean, recently, Severance opening title credit sequence is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite in years. Uh, the The Last of Us has a terrific opening credit sequence as well with the quarter steps growing everywhere Game of Thrones obviously House of the Dragon Dexter's is really terrific as well no matter how simple it, it is that was, probably, that, juice. that was probably the cheapest one to shoot out of all of these <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Sopranos, the one, Sopranos yeah. is great with the whoa this mm-hmm. morning mm-hmm. got myself mm-hmm. going with Tony Soprano, just driving through New Jersey crossing the bridges and everything so I think the title sequence of the show is absolutely terrific these really interesting shots almost kind of like black and white monochrome with like blue t- tints to it as well those super close ups of the characters kind of 3d model prints in a way it feels like that blend of like tintype style uh, photography as well and it's just really great song too that song is just perfect when when the when show nails the opening credits and you, it, it it's great because when you hear it you're like okay here we go it gets you in the mood it gets you set up and hbo their shows are have just become famous with like really pushing that opening credits title to really make something special now everybody has followed suit sets the tone for the show and if it's a really special one i always watch it before the episodes and it was a collaboration between director patrick clare his santa monica-based studio elastic his sydney-based studio antibody and brisbane-based company breeder it's uh reminiscent of well, David, David Fincher does a great job with his opening credits in, in his films. And seven, I think, is one of, if not the best, opening title sequence of all time in film. It's it's definitely up there. It's probably influenced why and TV series take it so seriously. Exactly. That's why I put it up, because a lot of series, it feels like it definitely inspired by the seven opening title credits. The seven opening credits sequence is so eerie and... It, it, terrifying and yeah. the music that uh the nine inch nails came up with as well as the visuals it's disturbing but it's setting the tone yeah. for what you're about to see and i think that these shows and specifically with true detective and severance and mm-hmm. these opening title credit sequence do a phenomenal job relaying the themes of what you're about to see in a f- interesting opening the inspiration for fincher doing it though was he wanted to do an opening credits but he didn't know what to do and then they were like we have all these journals that we spent like fifty thousand dollars for the art team to make and nobody's seeing anything on screen except for like maybe a couple of quick pages morgan freeman turns through but everything had stuff in it and so that's what they used for the opening sequences they went through all the notebooks and used the most interesting and disturbing parts of those books and because uh, he wanted to get john doe in earlier in some way to open the film and set mm-hmm. the tone so a combination of using john Doe's inserts of john doe's fingers like okay. the bloody finger fingers interacting with the notebooks, so that's where that came from it's also kind of like uh mission impossible where obviously we have the opening always but then we have the fun credits where we see like a tease of the entire movie yeah like a quick tease if you see not the entire movie (laughs) cool the coolest sequences yeah yeah yeah. like fun action stuff i love that because it's kind of cheesy but also that's part of the brand and they don't reveal anything too big it's just like here's a cool shot that you're about to see and it just goes by so quickly exactly but it sets the tone for the film i love it it's so important i think and like we said this show was shot on film so it was filmed on 35 millimeter format. And one second, I'm pulling up the specs right here. Get those specs, Anthony. <laughs> it was used... They used a Panavision Millennium XL2 camera, and the choice of lens corresponded to the period when a scene would took, take place, so either 1995 or 2002. Oh, so that's why it actually has like a different look, especially yeah. the interview sequences look very modern compared to the past. Exactly, and they would use the Panavision P Vintage lenses, which produced a softer image because they were made of recycled low-contrast glass. As these scenes were written as a reflection of Colin Hart's memory, production sought to make them as cinematic as possible to reflect what Arkaba called the fragmentation of their lucid imaginations back through the past so the the earlier scenes in 1995 they have more of a hazy dreamlike cinematography quality and lighting to them and look with the glass with the lenses they're using the 2012 scenes were shot with Panavision Primo lenses the visual palette in comparison was sharper and had much more contrast lending a modern crisp feeling to the images and according to Akupa pulling characters out from their environments to hopefully help audiences get inside their heads. So, they also did use the digital DV cameras for the first episode interviews. Obviously, you can see the the poor quality, the lack of a a decent lens on that interview camera, and I love uh, at the end of the first episode, when Fukunaga and Akrapa, the DP, they go from the LED screen of the DV camera, close up filming of rust during the interview it also has like this neutral blue color palette looks terrible and then (laughs) and then they pull their camera back and then turn and pan and reveal rust cole standing in the room with their beautiful lens and terrific lighting and that's the first time we actually see the real cinematography of rust in that room and then what i liked about that room is the way they filmed marty and the way they filmed rust was very unique because they had different backgrounds for them. And it isn't until episode four, I believe, where... Because Marty always has these windows behind him. And then Rust... It's al- kind of like looking into the office. Yeah, exactly. And then Rust always has shelving wood walls behind him. So they look like there are different rooms that they're being interviewed in. And it isn't until episode four where during one of the Marty scenes with the detectives, Pukanaga and Akapa, they change the, <clears throat> the angle and they reveal that wall that that Rust is always sitting in front of. And then we're like, oh, this is the same interview room. And I thought it was really clever how they did that to keep a visual difference between them. And at first, like, it's like, oh, is this like where Marty works now? And is this where they just... And then for Rust, is like, did they just bring him to the precinct? But now we see it's actually the same room that they're interviewing both men in. It's really interesting because they're so connected, no matter how different they are. They're very much the opposite sides of the same coin. And I can't wait to get into the characters, but I want to talk a little bit more about the production and art design, production design, because I think it's stellar in this show. Hey, talk about whatever you want, bro. The occult is one of the most fascinating parts of this show. As disturbing as it is and horrific as it is what this Tuttle family cult does in terms of the Yellow King and Carcosa and their sacrifice, sacrifices to this cosmic entity, you could say. And Carcosa was this, this cult-like world that they created this like vast wooden kind of stage or maze, kind of you could you could describe as where they would do their rituals inside of. It. And the production design is incredible. There's so much wood and sticks used to create walls and figurines throughout the series. The things that Errol Childress makes, those little triangle figures made out of wood, or even the artwork that's done. It's really disturbing, eerie, and mystifying. You know, it's it seems like is there something here? Is there kind of a deify a de- deity quality to this? Is is this actual real? Is is there really this god, this yellow king that they're trying to connect to or, or praise or worship? Is it related to the show somehow? It's, it's really interesting, just the design and look of the film. But also things like Rust's apartment reflects on his character so much of it's just empty and barren. Besides the crucifix on the wall and all these criminology books and then the, the backdrop of of Marty and his family and his house and his home where he thinks that's a refuge, he thinks that's what he's supposed to do. And that he's being a good man by having a family, even though he's experiencing it. He's, he's infant. He's uh, having an affair with, against his wife, just kind of like the, the backgrounds of where they go home to at night are so different, but also connect to their characters deep down so much. And the most interesting aspect of the design is obviously the little twig figures, the sculptures and, and it's, re- they're referred to as devil nests. Yeah. And- Joshua Walsh was responsible for creating the True Detective artwork, and his work for the show consists of creating over 100 individual devil's nests. These are twig sculptures created by the killer, along with wall paintings and the miniature sculptures of men made of beer cans, among others. Remember, who did that spoof of Rust with the beer cans? It was like some talk show host, and they spoofed it. I think it was might have been like an opening of like the Golden Globes or something. Can you look that up? I'll look it up. Yeah, because I remember I can't remember what it was. Like it, maybe it was like snowflakes they did as a spoof. <laughs> it was so funny. And so according to Greg, Jimmy Kimmel and Seth Rogen, uh-huh. what did they make? So it's on True Detective season two. Like they made a trailer, and what are they hold on. I got the. I, got I the think video it might right be here. snowflakes, paper snowflakes is what. they No, do. I think it's cans, but they make like a giant like sculpture out of all of them, like uh-huh. a pyramid. I <laughs> gotta see this, I'm trying to Yeah, remember. they make like a giant wall of bear cans. <laughs> <laughs> True Detective Season 2 trailer. <laughs> so Walsh's interest in hunting in taxidermy actually made him the perfect guy for the job. A blueprint for the devil's nest was not well established in the script, other than specifications that the structures had to be able to stand on their own and feature a spiral motif, another symbol that we see regularly in the show. Did Gerlando and Walsh spent went on a tripod design that showed a spiral when viewed from the base and contained a ladder-like crossing elements that symbolized the killer's desire to ascend to a dark spiritual realm, which is probably what the the leaders of the cult were trying to do as well. Each design had subtle differences from one another. Gerlando cited the work of Harry Darger and James Charles Castle as strong stylistic influences and sought a primitive look for the sculptures, one that revealed the workings of a man with some deep, inner urge to express himself and to reflect this walsh built devil's nests using mud secondhand children's clothing reeds roots and other materials he felt the killer would use and i always find these little sculptures whenever they find them in the show it's always so disturbing but also exciting especially in the uh, episode seven when we reveal that rust is working behind the behind on his own and he finds more sculptures in that abandoned uh, church school. And you're like, oh, my God, he's So many of it. them. Yeah. And I think the music in the show is also excellent. We have a bunch of songs by Bo Diddley, Melvin's Primus, the Staple Singers, Grinderman, Wu-Tang Clan, Vashti Boyan, Towns Van Zandt, Juice Newton, and Captain Beerheart. They, their songs all appear in season one. And then the composer for True Detective season one for the original music is let me pull it up right now. Is there an actual composer? Let me see. There must be. Who did the theme? Let I me mean, here. I'll look that up, and you can do something else. I should have looked this up before we started the episode. So obviously, <clears throat> there the women in the show never really have a control of the narrative, and the show tech is essentially viewed through the lens of men, and in a way, it is extremely limiting to the actors and the in the female characters in the show. But that obviously was the the point to Pizzolatto and Fukunaga when they were making the story. Uh, this show you could say is like a depiction of uh, the abuses that men put onto women and, and how men use women. And you, there's you see this is illustrated in many ways. First of all, obviously the killings. All of the victims are women that they keep finding, as well as you know the relationship between Marty and Maggie. I think is a fascinating one where he is. Extremely self-destructive and he is supposed to be doing the right thing as a husband and he can't even walk a straight and narrow line as a husband and a father and Every woman in the show is negatively affected by the men in their lives. And so I think that was the point of this narrative Obviously in the other seasons you have Rachel McAdams having a major leading role as one of the investigators so in this show in, in this season in particular the women are obviously limited, but I think that was their their point of what they were trying to do. Yeah, and I, there's a, the interview process with Michelle Monaghan's character um, where she's also being interviewed as Maggie about the past between Cole and Rust in a relationship. Specifically, they're trying to find out like what happened to them. Why did they split up in terms of their partnership and working together and that big fight, that big blowout in what was it, 2002, 2005, something like that. Mm-hmm. 2002, I think. And mm-hmm. then she says something along the lines where she's like, I've been navigating the sea of arrogant men for years. So she's been dealing with this for so long and sh- she's doing the best she can at raising her family and dealing with Marty and his infidelity and where she's come at in life. And, you know, she still loves Marty, but I, I think that was one of my favorite lines from the entire show of how it shows that she knows what's going on. And she knows that she has to do what she can for her family as best as she can because Marty is supporting them financially. So she doesn't have much freedom in their relationship, but she does eventually get control and eventually leaves him and takes agency for her family's sake and for the daughter's sake. And Sam Adams of Anywire wrote this great uh, quote saying, The story is about the horrible things men do to women, many of which are never reported or investigated by authorities. So, for example, no one missed Dora Lang. No one missed Marie Fontenot. And the police let a rumor stop them from following up. And so it's another example of women becoming victims to men and nothing ever being done about it. Not to mention even Alexander Daddario's character who gets assaulted and her apartment broken into by Marty's character, nothing comes of it. Yeah, absolutely nothing. And the show does do a good good job of showing uh, police corruption at certain points, especially um, the sheriff Garicho. Garichow? Guy with the mustache on the boat. Oh, um, gotcha. Hold on, let me. Garrett Garacho, yeah, so, something like that. Whatever his name is, and he's driving a hundred thousand dollar car. I can't remember where the car is, but he said he he lifted it from after he arrested some drug dealer who who had like only like a, a quarter ounce of weed on him. That was a Maserati. Maserati. So and then he impounded that Maserati and took it for himself. And so that's a great example of just police corruption right there. Just taking a person's car because they had a little weed on them. Yeah, that's crazy there. And speaking of corruption, that's one of the major themes of this show, you know, corruption versus justice. And sometimes they're used hand in hand in this show. Specifically, you could say the episode five where we see what really happened with uh, Rust and Marty when they took down that meth lab where... They obviously Marty blows the guy's brains out and murders him after he sees the the children that have been locked up for who knows how long inside that room. Obviously the right thing to do was to arrest them and process them and they would do their time for the rest of their lives in prison. But Marty blows his brains out, which is illegal. That's murder. And then they have to frame the whole situation like this giant war zone shootout. What a out. great episode. It's terrific oh because it's cross-cut. And we'll get into it in more detail when we go episode an episode of both of their interviews where they're both sticking to the same lie and story during the interview. And then we're cross-cutting and see what really happened at those events. So corruption as well as Rust going back undercover and getting into that criminal underworld to try to corruptly find answers to their the to the investigation. Illegally going undercover. Yes, yeah, illegally yeah. and then committing crimes yeah. <laughs> undercover. <laughs> so corruption, also the corruption of the Tuttle family and the the conspiracies and, and the covering up of all this information. Even the show ends with a giant cover-up where it almost seems like did all this even matter? Even though we stopped the serial killer, the connection made between the Tuttle family and the Childress is it's gone, like it doesn't matter because the media are under the control of these families. Other themes in the show, the concepts of reality and other dimensions, which Rust co- talks consistently about in the present day timeline. Also God versus religion. We have the occults, the cult murders, the cult-like religion of the Tuttle cult family saga and their corruption and their sacrifices of children to their God, to the Yellow King. Corruption, just also time being a loop. This is a concept that Rust is talking about in this present. Same year as Interstellar. <laughs> I know, right? And he has a great quote where he says, Fuck, I don't want to know anything anymore. This is a world where nothing is solved. Someone once told me, time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done or will do, we're going to do over and over and over again. And that little boy and that little girl, they're going to be in that room again and again and again forever. And then the concept of bad men. You know, that great line that Rust says where The world needs bad men. We keep the other bad men from the door. That's... I'm sorry. So these are, I think, some of the major themes of the show. What really makes this season special, in my opinion, is aside from the great narrative, aside from the great conflict and story, but really Russ Cole as a character and all of these things he's talking about and these heavy themes that are addressed in what would normally be a pretty standard investigative show or story... Um, but talking about all these incredible themes, I think it makes it special. And that's why I tried watching season two and it didn't didn't feel right. It, it just basically was a similar kind of tone and style of story, but it was lacking in that. And there's, I, I, for me, it's really Russ Cole that makes this show special. And these conversations that he has with Marty, who is some, someone who is just so close-minded, stubborn in a lot of ways, and doesn't want to be open to any kind of ideas that are new or strange or challenging, He could represent like the average person and Russ represents a very rebellious spirit and someone who's unsatisfied with reality and questions everything, questions existence, questions the idea of what the meaning of anything is. And you can see why he's so nihilistic now, why he has lost belief in anything, why he's not good at parties. And he (laughs) he views the human race as just meat puppets. Uh, So it's really a one of the most fascinating characters ever put on screen, I think. And that's, for me, the reason why True Detective Season 1 really works is because of McConaughey's performance and Rust Cole's entire character. I completely agree. We're almost an hour in, and we still haven't even really broken down these characters or episodes, and there's still a lot to talk about with these themes, as well as we have some fun facts. But how about we'll run to our intermission, take a little break, and then we'll come back and do... Even more breakdown of the characters, the Mac elements, and, and individually go episode by episode More <laughs> of True Detective Season 1. Before we get into the intermission, the very best way you can support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You may have noticed that the weekly chat has now exclusively moved to Patreon every single patron at a minimum cost of $2 per month, has access to the weekly chat, as well as an additional bonus episode every single week. We have a $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tier patronage on patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Each one has awesome perks. That $10 tier gets you access to our Discord community. We have a Over 100 people in there talking about film all day or sending memes and just chatting with us all the time. We do our watch parties on there as well. $25 tier, you also get a custom episode. You pick a topic and we do it for you. And then that $100 tier gets you not only an EP credit at the end of main episodes, you also get to come on the show for a fun guest segment after three months. Usually bring you in for the intermission, and chat about whatever topic we're going off about, as well as a private movie screening with us. So thank you to all of our patrons. You help support the show so much. You keep the lights on, and you allow Anthony to go to Trader Joe's every week. I need that. Trader Joe's, bro. I need it. <laughs> this episode is also sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over there and use our promo code RAIDERS10, and that'll get you 10% off your order right now. Again, MoviePosters.com has a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. MoviePosters.com also does a bi-weekly free movie poster giveaway for fans of our show, and we couldn't recommend their posters enough, so be sure to go to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com today. Now let's head into our intermission, Anthony. Let's do it. We'll begin with the movie quote competition. You ready for this? I'm ready. This is a tough one. Okay. Now I'm going to do his teeth and cut off his fingers. You may want to leave the room. I know this one. Give everyone a second. I am. I am. Look at you. He's he's learning, everybody. (laughs) Answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it one more time. Okay. Now I'm going to do his teeth and cut off his fingers. You might want to leave the room. That's a pretty good Russian accent. Not bad. Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises. Nice. Character named Nikolai. Nikolai. Great, great movie. Sick movie. Yeah, Cronenberg made it. Um with uh Vince uh, Vince Castle. Yes. Yeah, he's great. I love him. And Naomi Watts. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. She's she's the uh, co-lead in that. Next up. Here's my quote. Please, please, please speak English. I I enjoy to speak English. It is simple and ugly. <laughs> <laughs> you butchered that. Hold on, hold on. like Let eight I words. I didn't. I, hold on. Let me do a full accent. Please, please speak English. I enjoy to speak English. It is simple and ugly. <laughs> oh, I know this. It's a good. I love this movie. Give everyone a moment. <laughs> we, you have a, a tiny cock. A tiny <laughs> cock with big balls. Showing <laughs> balls, tiny, tiny cock. Tiny cock. <laughs> this is Robert Pattinson's character in The King. Nice job. Fucking nice love job. that movie, dude. I've seen that movie like four times. It's really good. Giant bulls. teddy cook. All right. Guess this movie release year. La N. 1998. 95. Oh, damn. That's interesting. Oh, you're doing a whole bracket of him, huh? Well, kind of. Yeah. Actually, well, it's like a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing. (laughs) One connected to the other connected to the other. Gotcha, gotcha. So Vincent Castle's not in the next. He's not the theme. He's not the theme, technically, but he's he's connected. It went from Vigo to Vincent to someone else next. Oh, I can't wait to see. All right. Guess this movie release here. Animal Kingdom. Hmm. How young was Joel Edgerton in this? Let me think. 2008? 2010. Oh, man. Close, close, close. Man, Why does that movie feel so much older? Because you're old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Because it was a while ago. It's over a decade old. Great film out of Australia. All right, Anthony. Movie pop quiz time. You ready, bruh? Mm Mm-hmm. What is... Monica Bellucci's character's name. Oh, that's why. <laughs> in The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. So his ex, Vincent Castle's ex. <laughs> What's her name? That's a really good question. <laughs> um She's in the second and third films. Oh my god. I remember when I was a kid and I saw her that I was like, "Oh my dog on the floor, like <laughs> like that cartoon dog." I, I was like, oh, I, I think I became a man <laughs> when I saw Monica Bellucci for the first time <laughs> at age eleven. <laughs> I don't know her name, Persephone. Persephone must have to do with the uh, Greek god Persephone or something. Pretty sure it does. Yeah. Nice, nice quiz. Yeah, thanks. that was a good one. A tough one. Okay, here's mine. Joel Edgerton appeared in what Antoine Fuqua film? I'm guessing you're doing a Joel Edgerton one. <laughs> ding, 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 <laughs> ding, Let's see. It's either widows or is it 12 years of slavery or widows, I'm thinking. Antoine Fuqua. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve McQueen. Wow. Canceled. <laughs> Canceled. Canceled. Just lock me up. Canceled. Lock me up. Lock me up. Lock me up. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> raise the last podcast canceled (laughs) you're done let's see (laughs) um hmm that's a good question it is a good question i did it you got this man you got this oh man um non-king arthur (laughs) non-training day Did Anton Fuqua do what was it? Triple nine? No. Hmm. That was uh, John Hillcoat. I'm sp- I don't know. It is King Arthur. Oh, it is? Yeah, no play, fucking He played way. one of the knights. Oh, my God. Ga- Guy Wan, he played. Not King Arthur, I say. And that's the answer. <laughs> I was like, fucking <laughs> Fuckin idiot. Fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> what a moron. Yeah, now that I think about it, yeah. Yeah, he's super young in it. Ray Winstone's in it, too. Like, that that cast of the knights is insane for how many, like, unknown famous actors now are in it. It's a cool movie. Oh, yeah. I like that movie. <laughs> we have a Godfather shout-out today. Yeah, who we got? Andrew Hagen is not only a Godfather patron, he's a Chosen One patron. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for supporting our show and being an incredible fan and friend to us. We love communicating with you. You also are taking our podcast masterclass because you have a really cool podcast idea about your father and his work in the FBI. That That's you're going to awesome. work on. I can't wait to see and hear that. And for his Chosen One Godfather episode, he picked... Black Hawk Down for a bonus review. Hell yeah. So I can't wait to review that one. I love that. It's a super underrated Ridley Scott film. We were just actually talking about 21st century war films and how many great ones there are there. I kind of just forgotten because we just did Jarhead for a bonus episode. And so I can't wait to talk about Black Hawk Hawk Down now. That cast is insane. It's a really good movie. Really good movie. It it really is. All right. Let's uh, do a five-star review we got from Jesse this podcast brings swag back to cinema five stars wow thank you so much found this podcast back in early 2021 and i've been listening ever since anyone that loves movies in the artistry of film should listen to this podcast this podcast has a great amount of variety in episodes which always entertains they break down films and different aspects of the film industry in a manner that is interesting and informative i have added many films to my watch list on letterboxd due to the suggestions anthony and james make these guys keep me entertained on my morning commute long flights or gym sessions love seeing some fellow northeast natives having success hope these fellas keep up the good work p.s i'm also juno's number one fan (laughs) (laughs) thanks jesse thank you jesse appreciate Appreciate that so so much what an incredible review do we have any haters or unsubscribes we have a bunch yeah we have some good ones and also just there's a couple really funny comments that i had to just throw out (laughs) some of these cracked me up man we got some funny fans. <laughs> my God. <laughs> All right, so FBI, WC9OK, I think it's the real FBI, <laughs> on our live show episode wrote, Nah, why are you sitting in the wrong seats? Unsubscribe. <laughs> I think you are. At least I can't tell who it is. Very good show, too, by the way. We're actually in the right <laughs> side. Yeah, we're in the right yeah, side. Yeah. so James is me. I'm always on the left. Yeah. And he's always on the right. And next up, Apocalypse, I, I8R599 wrote, I'm convinced Anthony just watched James play the entire game of Last of Us at this point. (laughs) Because I keep saying I saw you do that. Yeah, I saw you do that part. (laughs) But I replied, I basically watch whenever I make food and eat. So that actually amounts to a lot of time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then our two
0: is awesome, by the way. Yeah, it looks cool. It's so good. Next up, Robinson Jerome wrote, you disagree with me? Unsubscribed. (laughs) We were were debating how much Mission Impossible 7 is going to make. He said 800- I said nine hundred mil. Did I say a bill? You said a, you say a bill, yeah. Did I say a bill. Tom Cruise baby, Tom Gun Maverick pulled one point six. Why not Mission Impossible seven? Especially <laughs> that poster that just dropped the other day of him looks great flying off the motorcycle in real life. I hope it makes a bill. That vertical poster is incredible with the the text behind him, Mission Impossible so going cool. up. It's so clever. So cool. Then Alexander wrote Hey guys, just listened to the latest podcast about studios versus theaters, and what an episode you do, you two do a lot for the industry, are making sure everybody understands how the film business goes around. Thank you so much for that. There will never be an unsubscribe from me, deuces. Appreciate it, bud. Thanks, pal. And then <laughs> uh, the Chris Car, the Thirsty Carnold wrote, Thirsty Carnold wrote, "Where's the Last of Us episode nine review?" Unsubscribed. <laughs> that <laughs> Sorry. was when we posted the uh, the Oscars review instead. Yeah, we had to bump it a day, and then. Joshua Reiner wrote, no more free weekly chat. Guess I'm going to have to unsubscribe (laughs) and subscribe to the Patreon. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, Joshua. Appreciate it, Joshua. It means the world to us. Connor Crumman, one of our Patreon members, a Godfather patron, wrote, didn't defend Babylon not winning best music. Snort's line of coke. Unsubscribed. (laughs) (laughs) Dirk Diggler wrote, yesterday you guys said that. Would be the Last of Us review tomorrow. And and instead it's the Oscars reaction. This is false advertisement. Unsubscribed. (laughs) (laughs) Sick of this misinformation. (laughs) Gaston Monescu wrote on our Studios vs. Theaters episode, It was a good show. Seen better, but still good. (laughs) Inside joke, that's great <laughs> oh, Yeah, because someone Jackie. actually said that yeah. Oh, they said that about a movie yeah. Prisoners yeah, like, Prisoners is alright, seen better I'm like, okay <laughs> That's so mean <laughs> So <laughs> who says that about anything? Sick reference, Gaston Your references are out of control, everybody knows that <laughs> Yeah, I saw Prisoners, seen better though Yeah <laughs> <laughs> What a bozo. Goodness. Whoever that guy was, man. All right, let's get back into our episode. <laughs> well, what's your streaming recommendation? Oh, sorry. My streaming recommendation Louise. is Barry Lyndon, directed <coughs> by Stanley Kubrick. And this movie's excellent. It's three and a half hours, so strap in. Uh, I watched it for free on YouTube, actually. There were some ads here how, and there. How big were the ads? Were they long? They're usually like the five-second ones that you can skip. Really? So, yeah. oh, I thought they would be like the ad breaks you would get on like Hulu free version, where it's like two minutes, and Not, you can't skip them. It's yeah, those ones drive me nuts. Yeah, but uh, it's just like the ones that they go for five seconds, then you can skip. Oh, that's cool. Which was fine because I watched it in segments because it's such a long film, and it worked out fine. But uh, I had been getting, I've been meaning to get around to this film for a long time now. And I thought it was absolutely terrific. It's really darkly funny. So well written. The production's incredible. And I, I thought it was just excellent, excellent directing. I'm glad you finally seen it. Me too. It's a great movie. More people should see it. My I believe st- it's on some streaming platforms but yeah, he, that we subscribe to. Yeah, I think you need to have like a premium channel one, like Stars or something. Something like that. Yeah. No, who, who has Stars? <laughs> <laughs> stars. <laughs> stars is the Z. No, but that was a reference to... Um, to what? Stars? That was a reference to Resident Evil. Uh uh-huh. cuz that's what the name of the tactical teams are called stars stars Star. are they? yeah oh, I didn't remember that yeah anyways My streaming recommendation this week. It's either stars or stars. I think it's stars. I think it's stars. Stars team or something. That's what the the monster says. Stars. Is that what you're referencing? (laughs) Yeah. What monster says that? It's like Resident Evil (laughs) Two. Oh, like the big guy? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he says anything, does he? He does. He says that. (laughs) Stars. He just says stars over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) The whole movie. That's (laughs) all. Stars. What are you doing here? Stars. He's like, I'm Groot. Groot. That's an obscure as hell reference. Sorry for anyone that just didn't get that at all besides me. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even get it. Next up. Anthony knows every reference. (laughs) Even I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> that did sound kind of snobby, didn't it? Mm, oh, even I didn't get that. <laughs> I'm Reddit. I mm, sleep with everybody. Oh, I'm Samantha. Samantha. I sleep with everybody. <laughs> Not us, man. Not us, right? Sick <laughs> reference, bro. That's, I love forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's a good one. <laughs> it's really, Harrison, I saw this Harrison Ford interview uh, talking about hit the new show he has with Siegel, like Shrinking, I think it's called. And someone asked him, were you f- aware of Siegel's work and <clears throat> did you know him at all? He said, I, I saw it for getting Sarah Marshall and I really liked it, but it. liked it. I liked him in it. And they're like, what, what do you think about him in it? And he said, nice penis. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Because f- Siegel, Siegel does full frontal in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Harrison Ford. He's, he's so he's funny. He's an icon, man. He's so funny. What a legend. <laughs> Never change. Oh my God. He doesn't have much time to change anyways. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't say that. <laughs> Damn. I'm just Damn, kidding. brutal. Love him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you'll probably die before him. That guy's in great shape. <laughs> what are you saying about me? <laughs> just nothing, man. Just watch yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get what were we talking about. My recommendation. Okay, your, your recommendation <laughs> 10. That really spinballed. 12 hours later. <laughs> the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is on HBO Max. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking out Andrew Dominic's film. It is mm, probably Brad Pitt's greatest performance, and Casey Affleck is incredible in that film as well. And Roger Deakins did some of his best work as a cinematographer in that film, without a doubt. It's unbelievable. There's no other Western like it. It's very unique. I believe that was also the first film that Brad produced with Plan B. Oh, it might be, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is really cool. Mm-hmm. All right, now can we get back into True De- Detective? Now we can. All right, let's get back into... Wait, wait, se- hold up. No, i yeah, Season <laughs> one of True Detective. Let's talk a little bit more in detail about these characters of Rustin Cole and then... Marty Hart. Marty, Marty. And what I love about these performances is each actor is really playing two different versions of the characters. We have the past timeline and the present timeline, which are cut back and forth non-linearly, which is done so effectively in this story. Again, we've talked about that with lots of films, how difficult it can be. It doesn't always work well narratively, but if you can pull it off, it really adds so much suspense and narrative to the story of like keeping on the edge of your seat, and you don't know what's coming next. and You know, these characters... We're watching them in these interviews. They know everything that's happened, but we're learning through their past flashbacks, basically, of this interview process, what happened truly during this investigation. Now, Matthew McConaughey is Rustin Cole. Like Anthony said, it's an all-time performance. It's one of the best of the century in film and TV. And Rustin is a talented but troubled detective. He's dedicated dedicated to his work and is renowned for his abilities, notably his ability to get confessions out of criminals and suspects because he he really just understands people. And he he has so many great lines where he's talking about, I've never been in a room with somebody for less than, for two minutes without knowing whether they've done it or not. And he just, he says like, I can look into their eyes, basically I can see through their souls and I know what to tell them, what they need to hear in order to get a a confession his services are basically being used by different detectives and agencies around the state. He's to, a box man. Yeah, basically to yeah. get in the interview room and get people to confess to their crimes, which he does to these people. They kind of don't even know what's going on while it's going while it's happening. Yeah, and one of these one of these instances is where he hear, hears the new clue about the yellow king, which reinvigorates his investigation into what he thought was a solved case. So it's one of these box room trying to get a confession out of a criminal. Criminal says. Something about the Yellow King. He's like, "What the fuck did you just say, Yellow King? I thought I got, I, I took care of that guy." And so that actually is a major catalyst to the story continuing on. And it's a great character trait. But he also ironically says, I, "I'm terrible in poker," so he can't just he can't like read people's reads or read like if they're lying about a, something as trivial as a poker game. But in a way, he can see through people and deep down what's inside of them. And Rust is someone who is he's already been basically obliterated by the world and destroyed by the time the show starts with the death of his daughter tragic car accident and the dissolution of his marriage and I'm curious I would be curious to see what Rust was like when he was a father I'm sure he still was I'm sure he wasn't like happy go lucky <laughs> I'm sure he was still a strange guy he always has been because he even says to Marty it's taken me years to reconcile my nature um, I wouldn't forego it on your account. So he's probably always been strange. He is a very unique person, very difficult to socialize with. Uh, he's very inquisitive in all the bad in all the ways that people want to avoid. Um, and he's uh, very reflective about the world, about himself. And he's very closed off and very, uh, in a lot of ways, doesn't like to show emotion. Um, and he can be very blunt. And like he says, he's not good at parties. So I'm sure even when he was married and had a kid, I'm sure he wasn't, like, awesome to be around. Awesome, bro. (laughs) He wasn't, like, watching. You're not going golfing with him. Exactly. But I would be curious to see what he was like as a father because what we're seeing at the start of the show is he's already been completely destroyed and ripped apart by the tragedy of his past. And now he's just become basically a shell of a human being in a lot of ways. And just his only purpose is to... Just work. And that's basically who he is. I would wager that he was a little more gregarious in his past before the death of his daughter than he obviously is, isn't later on because he's antisocial, introverted. But I'm not saying that he was like kind of like Marty, but I'm sure the loss of the child, like you said, the breaking up of the marriage and then going undercover for four years, becoming a different person, all the drugs he took has just completely changed him so much and pushed him towards the other end of the spectrum of nihilism that maybe he was tinkering in and probably had those ideas about, but I think a lot of those things combined created who he was. But he's probably a lot more of quote unquote of a normal person before the loss of his daughter. He carries around this unusually large ledger, which gave him the got him the nickname the tax man from fellow officers and colleagues. He uses it to keep detailed notes and sketches of the scenes that in crime scenes and investigations that he's on. On the surface he's very much aloof. Again, he's introverted, cynical Tough to talk to, and seems cold and apathetic on a regular basis to pretty much everybody, but he's very intelligent. He's obsessed with criminology, with solving murders, solving crimes— After the death of his daughter, he went right into undercover work for four years. And you're not even supposed to do, I believe, what Marty said 11 months 11 months max for undercover work. He did four years undercover using hard drugs to stay (laughs) undercover. Never broke cover and even was able to use it later on in his career during this investigation to go back undercover because he was never made to get more information on their investigation. Yeah, luckily for him. So his cover, it was during an incident and he was able to get taken out. But people believe that he was shot a couple of times in the hip. And then nobody heard from him again in, that, in those gangs. And so he was able to illustrate a new cover story of saying that he was escorted into Mexico, healed up, and has been working there for a cartel for the last few years. And so that's his new cover. So he was able to seamlessly go right back into his old cover, which is, which worked great. And, and Rust, I think, when I watch him, he's, he, he kind of reminds me of Hannibal Lecter. Especially in Science of the Lambs. Not like the... I mean, Hannibal obviously gets so much pleasure out of what he does and enjoys conversing with people. But in terms of sheer brilliance and dedication to their craft, but also an uncanny ability to uh, understand other people almost instantly, which is why he's such a good box man. How we can decipher lies and really judge a person just upon meeting them. So I, it he does remind me a lot about Hannibal Lecter. Also the drawing, Hannibal Lecter likes to draw. Um, so I, I get a lot of that when I watch this show. I, I kept thinking about Hannibal, even though they're on the opposite sides of the law. True, that, that's an interesting point. He also suffers from... Some mental health issues because of the four years of hard drugs that he took. He has hallucina- hallucinations. He sees things, most notably driving the car with Marty in the front seat. He sometimes has light hallucinations. And then, obviously, in the, the final episode, he has the potential hallucination of the heavens opening up to him right before he's stabbed. We'll get into that in a little bit because it's so interesting what the metaphor for that could be. But also the trauma of his past of losing his child of the breakup of his of his marriage, but also I'm sure the trauma he experienced of living undercover for four years was so immense it just destroyed who he is as a person. And his apartment's so interesting for this character. He has, he has no... Furniture or nothing, like when Marty goes there for the first time, he's like, I'd offer you a seat, but I don't have any. And he eventually just has kind of like a a lawn chair that he sits in eventually. He has nothing on the walls except for that crucifix and then a tiny little mirror that's about the size of an eye just to look at with one solo eye. And then it's funny when Marty's living there (laughs) temporarily after he gets split up from – Maggie's like, are you supposed to look in this with one eye or both eyes? (laughs) So he's very meditative and reflective, and everything he says in this show makes you as a person question your reality, your existence, your philosophies on life, which is so incredible. I love shows that make you think, and specifically characters that make you think, not just about what's happening on the show with the investigation, but outside of the show, in your life, in your reality, are we here for a reason, or are we just an accident by nature, which is such a great concept that he brings up randomly a few times. And this is McConaughey like we'd never seen him before. He's done great dramatic work in the past. It's like, it was, the McConaughey wasn't the first time we saw him do things like this. He's really great in Amistad, the Spielberg film. He's really great in Lincoln Lawyer. There's a couple other dramatic films that he's just excellent in. Killer Joe is one that's flew under the yeah. radar. Yeah, Willard, William Friedkin made that um, a few years before this, I think that was 2011, and he's just that dude. That like last 10 minutes is insane. That drumstick scene. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so he he's always had that talent, and he's always had that ability. But obviously with his career, and he's he's said this in interviews and in his book. He took the money. He did the easy jobs. He did the he he liked getting paid 15 million dollars per movie, doing the rom coms and sexiest man alive. Yeah, sex, yeah. So he was he was choosing success over the art and and really excelling in his talent. And so I'm sure at this point he was getting hungry and maybe wanted to prove himself to the world that, like, you know what, I, I actually am extremely talented and I can do what uh, maybe people don't see what I can, what I'm capable of. And so this was just such a stark contrast to what we'd seen him do before. Um, this in Dallas Buyers Club, but this one in particular, because even in Dallas Buyers Club, he's playing a very charming guy, very personable. So he still had that, like, McConaughey charm. In there, kind of like that cowboy. Yeah, exactly. But in this film, Rust is such a blank slate of a human being. On the surface, he is so grim and he's so dark and lacks any kind of charm at all. He does he even smile in this film at all? He smiles when he's at dinner after he's finally in a relationship with the four of them. Yeah, yeah. He smiles with Laurie. Yeah, he like like it's like kind of like a, a forced smile, but it's a smile. Yeah, yeah. I had never seen McConaughey like this on a dramatic level. Like this there's like an emptiness to the character and it was so striking. And then you see it contrasted with the older 2005 version of Rust and this is this man who's just been worn down by time, worn down by guilt. Obviously he's feeling guilty and so much regret for not catching the killer and he's he he right now is at that point in time he's the only one solely holding the weight of all the new victims of the past 12 years that have gone unsolved that he's blaming himself for letting it happen so it's worn him down and he's spending every waking hour committed to trying to solve the case and you just see that he looks like he's aged 30 years and i love that marty line where he says when he's talking to the detectives and he's like oh you 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 spoke to rust well The entire time you were trying to size him up, he was sizing you guys up. So you can see that Rust always has the upper hand in situations, even when it doesn't seem like it. And one of my favorite things is in the first episode during the interviews where he basically tells them, orders them to get him a a case of uh, Lone Star beer. He starts drinking. It's actually a strategy that he has in the interview room, Rust, where he knows that if he gets drunk during an interview, that makes his interview inadmissible as evidence. And so... They can't use his dismissible as, as evidence. As, yeah, is that dis- the word? I think symbol. Yeah. It can't be used as evidence. And so that's actually why he has them drink. He has them get drinks so that he can get drunk in that way. His testimony is invalid. So he's always got the upper hand in any kind of situation, whether it be a social situation or whether it be a physical situation. There's multiple times where he and Marty get physical, like at the time in the locker room, and then Marty has like him up against the wall, but during this scene, and Marty's like mouthing off at him, he's Rust is slowly moving his hands into the superior position, and then he finally has both of Marty's hands in his control. He's like, he's like, I can snap your wrists in half right now if, if with the right amount of pressure. And then he intimidates the other officers when they try to get physical with him. And then with the Mar- with the Marty fight, he clearly held back and didn't do what he could have done. He could have seriously hurt Marty. And he let he basically let Marty get his anger out on him. So Rust always has the upper hand. Yeah, Marty even asked him, like, it's like a, the end of Rocky. Like, did you give me everything you had? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, do you even want to know? <laughs> and Marty, I mean, Rust is a very changed character by the last five, ten minutes of the show compared to the rest of the entire season. You know, the version of him in the past timelines, in the 90s and early 2000s, in the present-day timeline... You know, he becomes even more nihilistic in terms of in the from the past where he's kind of accepted who he is. That's one of the major differences between Marty and Rust, where Rust knows exactly who he is and he accepts it. Whereas Marty and then Marty's wife Maggie even tells him, You don't know who you are. You, you can't even figure out who you are when you're middle-aged. and you're middle aged and she understands that he's going through this middle aged crisis, but he's destroying their family at the same time. So I say that's one of the major differences between them. But by the third act of the final episode, the, the the final episode of the season, Rust has changed so much where he sort of changed his perspective on the world just being completely dark. You know, he's kind of similar, you could say, maybe a cross between Morgan Freeman's character in Seven, Somerset, and then maybe Sherlock Holmes in a lot of ways where he's highly dedu- deduced, he deduces things really well. He's not as sharp at figuring things out or as quickly as figuring things out as Sherlock, obviously, but he, he has high intelligence he pays attention to small details that most people miss takes these extensive notes lots of knowledge but then somerset having that nihilistic approach to the world's a dark place it's worth fighting for i agree with the the first part you know what i mean so kind of this approach where what's the point of life what's the point of these investigations yeah we'll stop this killer but really is it going to change anything in the grand scheme of humanity but then by the end, after he survives that near-death attack by Childress in Carco Carcoas, Car- Car- Carcosa. Carcosa, he's changed. And he says that line to Marty outside the hospital in the wheelchair where he looks up at the sky and he says something about, you know, I've always thought of the world like being very dark and darkness has engulfed everything. But I'm starting to think that the light's winning. So he's kind of changed his perspective yeah, on his reality. He says there used to just be darkness and now we have all this light, so it looks like lights winning. yeah. so that yeah, that's what he says. So I think that's a really great line because he he changes so much even by the last episode of the show. yeah. and as an investigator, he has real vision because where he and Mario differ is he immediately understands that this has probably been happening for years, undetected. and then it more will happen. more murders like the Dora Lang murder. Whereas Marty, he often has a simplistic view of detective work where he never wants to make connections to things, he never wants to form a narrative, which which, I mean is smart as well, but it also, if they were doing it Marty's way, it would have held them back and limited their research and their investigation, whereas uh, Rust is always trying to extend this narrative and connect dots and he's not afraid to understand and look into seeing if the scope of this thing gets bigger and bigger and there's he it's because of his belief in the size of the the crime that gets him to look through old murder cases old missing person cases so many cold cases to eventually begin finding a lot of connecting crimes and realizing that this has been a huge undertaking over decades and it's really because of his ability to accept that you know this, key, this might seem crazy, but I'm not going to let that deter me from pursuing this crazy narrative that seems plausible. And that's what makes him, uh, that's what gives him the ability and motivation to be able to make these connections to the old cases. That relates to in the first episode where Marty's talking about the different kinds of detectives that there are. You know, some are like him, he's just a simple guy, family man. Uh, he's, he's religious, but also he's just, he's not he's nothing special, but he's solid. But then you have people like Rust, he says, who are like the thinkers, the intellectuals, who they have a mind for it, but they're hard to work with and hard to get along with. And to prepare for this role, Matthew McConaughey actually created a 450 page analysis called The Four Stages of Rustin Cole to study his character's evolution over the course of the story, which is. Super duper fascinating. Yeah, so I read that uh, Pizzolatto said that he had this entire complex system where, for every scene, he he had mapped out for every moment exactly where Rust was mentally, physically, and emotionally, and it was all written down and planned and pre- and prearranged and organized by McConaughey because they're uh, they're not filming in order and like they filmed all those interview scenes in one day. And so it's kind of all over the place as a shooting schedule. So, I mean, you got to give it to McConaughey for putting so much work into the preparation to being able to just point on a spot like, oh, this is how I'm going to perform this moment right here because this is where he is in this part of the story and this in his life and what he's thinking at this point. So he put so much into it and you can really see on screen because it shows. And I love the philosophical nuggets we get from Rust, whether you believe in them or not, or no matter how dreary they can be, Or cynical they're still fascinating I think one of my favorites is the one where he does on nature versus nurture where he says I believe he's talking to Marty in this one he says I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep to evolution we became too self-aware never created an aspect of nature separate from itself we are creatures that should not exist by natural law we are things that labor under the illusion of having a self an accretion of sensory experience and feeling programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody when in fact everybody is nobody. Maybe the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. Pretty dark. It's pretty dark <laughs> stuff because they, they, this one of the main themes of the show is religion, good versus evil. And, and whether we're talking about, believing in God, believing in in having faith or not. But but by the end of the season, you can't help deny that Rust might have found some sort of faith. And also he, you could argue, is a metaphor for Christ in this entire season. And there's a great breakdown that I found by left foot media of does rust basically represent jesus christ in the show and these are some great connections in season one that might allude to this so episode one marty asks him about the cross in his empty apartment russ says he uses it for meditation to contemplate christ's crucifixion in the garden of gethsemane while he surrenders himself to his own crucifixion later on it foreshadows the demonic kind of crucifixion that rust undergoes in the final episode in that dark demonic wooden garden that was created by errol childress Christ's crucifix is often depicted not just always on a, on a cross, but also oftentimes in artwork on a tree on wood. Obviously, Childress uses trees to create his little figures. He leaves behind at the murders those little what are they called? The uh, the devil devil's nest devil's nests, as well as Carcosa is just littered and covered with wood that has been created into the that's been turned into these walls and maze-like uh, avenues and crevices and tunnels jesus was pierced in the abdomen during his crucifixion if you've seen constantine you might remember this the spear spear of of destiny. destiny they have the spear of destiny rust was stabbed in the abdomen and then lifted into the air by errol childress and right before that remember he looked up and he had a hallucination or a vision of what you could argue was the heaven's Opening up to him in a lot of ways, whether that was part of his drug abuse and what's happened to his mind or it actually happened, that's up for you to decide for yourself. It's very ambiguous. And then Jesus told his disciples that he would eventually be raised high into a place of glory, lifted up. Hmm. Marty cradles the head of the dying rust after he's been stabbed and attacked, similar to the way that that Mary cradles Jesus's head at the foot of the cross when he's dying and dead. Rust also in that hospital bed in the third in the final episode is staring at his own reflection in the window. Now this is the first time that we've seen Rust at this present day present timeline with his hair unfurled down. He's always had it in a ponytail up until this moment and when his hair is down, he looks very much like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he's bruised up and battered and resembles christ the suffering servant so Mm -hmm. only through suffering does rust find the path of goodness and truth that's interesting i like that theory i never thought of that at all i think it's all connected because Mm -hmm. why else would he have a cross that's connected in the first episode with basically the third episode is the culmination of all these things and i think the hair down yeah bruised face looks like jesus christ right now on the cross in this hospital bed is a clear example of a great metaphor for Russ for Russ Cole and for the character starting out so anti-religious, anti-spiritual. So that makes a lot of sense. I like that. And and then, but Marty is a perfect contrast with him because Marty is an extremely flawed, ironic character who believes that he's always he I, he always thinks he's doing like the right thing and doing what's best. and In his mind, he's always the center of the universe. Um, and that's the biggest flaw for for Marty with his family. He always puts what he wants first. He always puts his desires first. He has he's honestly he's there on paper, but emotionally he's not a father. And emotionally he's not a husband. And there's a lot of great scenes with Michelle Monaghan, who really did a terrific job as as Maggie in this role. And this, this illusion of this marriage, because Marty can't help from cheating on her. He can't help from sticking at work rather than going home um he looks and they have this great conversation early in the season where the first fight they have about him working too much and never being home and he says this is he and he's basically saying the my this house is supposed to be like my place of relaxation this is supposed to be where i'm supposed to like put my feet up in and rest and he doesn't want to have conflict there he doesn't want to have fights he doesn't want to deal with anything there because works so hard and that's such an unfair thing to say to your to your partner and about your family that and it's so selfish because he's basically saying this is all for me and no one else deserves to have their say and no one else deserves to have a feeling about how things are going it's all about me and for their entire marriage marty is completely self-invested and he makes excuses and blames the work on everything but in fact he could work in a different division of the police department he doesn't have to be a homicide detective i think in a lot of ways he's just constantly trying to get away from his marriage try and get a, avoid his family because in ways he i think he doesn't want, even want to deal with it and he's obviously loves his kids there's many moments where you, you see like a tenderness and care for his children and for his wife but Ultimately, the person Marty cares most about is himself, and that's his biggest flaw. They use him He uses his family as like his escape, yeah, versus them being a part of his life because it's what he wants and he wants them to be as happy as him. He just uses them as a blanket for his problems. And he even says that line about Rust a few times. He says, there's a certain point a man's age where he gets too far along where not having a family is a bit odd or a man needs a family when you're that old. Eventually he finds out that Rust did have a family and he lost his child, but you don't. he doesn't find that out until like episode three or four. But he's so – like you said, he's really hypocritical and ironic because just because he has a family, he thinks he's a better person than Cole or he thinks he's figured life out because he hasn't figured life out either. And he's the one having a true midlife crisis because, as Maggie says to him, you don't even know who you are. And you used to be so different. You used to be like an honorable person. You used to be a good man. You used to be a good man. She says that multiple times this season. She sees that in Rust. She sees Rust as a good man. And that's why Maggie uses Rust to hurt Marty, because the only way that she could get him to understand how unhappy she is and to get an excuse to leave him finally after even with the infidelity of Marty, she uses Russ to sleep with him in order just to attack Marty and get out of her relationship and out of her marriage. And because Marty is a cheater, he he is overly suspicious. And that's actually a psychological thing Like people will be suspicious of someone doing something wrong because they're actually doing that thing wrong. And so that actually happens, and it's depicted well in the show, where he gets extremely upset and jealous when he f- comes home and finds that Rust had brought home the brought the lawnmower back and mowed their lawn, and was just having like you know a very innocent platonic uh, uh, conversation with Maggie while the kids were watching TV. Nothing intimate or sexual at all was even even on the cards in on both their minds. But when when Marty showed up, he became extremely insecure and angry and basically kicked him out kicked rust out of the house and then they had this great little argument outside and rust is like what are you worried about me doing here home without you without you here what are you worried about and he's basically saying you what are you he's basically saying you're worried that i'm gonna sleep with your wife why are you worried i'm gonna sleep with your wife because you sleep with other people and so marty puts his own shit and his own guilt and his own betrayals onto other people like Rust and Maggie in that situation, it's because he himself is a betrayer of Maggie. And so it's it's a great writing, it's great writing of the character in a moment like that to showcase how behavior really can be influenced by our own sins. It shows how insecure Marty also is about being a father and a husband in his family because Rust comes home, he does like all the fatherly things. He's spending time with. I like mowing Mo's, my lawn. Mo's, Mo's yeah. Marty's lawn, so he's doing the things that like. A father or a husband should do in a in a normal in like a typical you know nuclear family taking on that gender role where Marty should be doing it, but he's off having affairs and pretending to be at work or just at work avoiding his family. Yeah. And Ro- Rust was there for a couple hours and fit in the role more seamlessly and took over his responsibilities that he always ignores. And, and it seems as though Rust and Maggie they have more of a bond in from what you see in the show than Marty and Maggie do. Like, they, actual, they have actual meeting conversations. And, and in a lot of ways, Maggie tries to improve Russ's life by trying to set him up with girlfriends of hers and, and tries to help him as a person. And there, There is a, a kinship there, and I think Marty definitely sees that and becomes jealous of it. I think so, too. And Marty, he describes himself in the first episode in the present timeline during the opening of the interview with the two detectives as, you know, I'm just a regular type dude with a big-ass dick, <laughs> that's a perfect description and opening of the character because he's so arrogant and ignorant. And he's he's gregarious versus Russ where he's very socially and political savvy when it comes to the politics of law enforcement and this this world because he's really well respected by his superiors, by other officers. He's always the leading detective on cases. He's kind of in charge of their situations, even though Russ does the majority of the work in investigating and figuring things out with clues. Obviously, there's a role for the type of detective that marty is as well you don't have to be the intellectual detective but that's kind of why their their team kind of works so well at the same time as they constantly butting heads the politics side that marty handles because yeah. they would have gotten taken off the case if marty wasn't so good at that part of his job which he actually to his credit is but ultimately he was never really cut out for this gig and that's where it, that's why he left he, he left he could have become a lieutenant, or even a higher ranking, and Russ says that when they when they're at uh, Marty's um, headquarters at his office, he's like, "Why'd you leave? You could have you could have been LT or something." And then Marty realized, you know, this it wasn't what he wanted to do with his life. He said he just ended up doing it, and it, it just wasn't the right thing for him. And he tells that story of seeing the baby in the microwave, and then he just basically said, "I never want to see anything like that again." some people just aren't cut out for it whereas rust like and he could look at images like that all day and it doesn't bother him at all and he kind of actually in a way probably gets excited by seeing these things and trying to catch these people and so they are very different people with how they can react how they react to these grisly crimes it's so interesting to watch their present day timelines and then watch what's happening in the past back and forth because marty as arrogant as he is in the opening of the interview throughout the course of the present day interview you know he's opening about of all the things that have been haunting him and all the mistakes that he's made which he's come to terms with and he understands now you know that woman she was the key and those kids by ignoring them and doing everything else that's what led to my life being now where i just go home alone and eat Frozen dinners every night and in look, front of the TV. Look at eHarmony accounts. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so I think that it's actually not much different from my life. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're an eHarmony or Match.com. No, no, no. So Marty <laughs> goes through a lot of opening up through the course of his present day timeline interview, and you can see how much. He's done thinking about his past and the mistakes he's made, which is really fascinating because, you know, he uses even, – even in that interview in the first couple episodes, he seems like such an asshole and douchebag because of the things he's saying. But eventually by the end of the interview, he's kind of coming to terms with all of these being mistakes, especially when he starts talking about, you know, making – he's justifying – having affairs as for the best of the family yeah. it's good for the family for me to go out and sleep with other women it keeps the family happy and stable it's he's, so yeah. selfish yeah he's basically saying like you need to get your mind right before you go home and like you need to get a release and like that's the best way to do it, it was, it's terrible but he's defending it and what what's really interesting with the marty's timeline changes the shifts from the interview to the past is you're looking at someone who knows all the mistakes he's made in his life and has come to terms with it, and then it, and then it talks about them in front of these two men, and then in contrasting with that, you're watching him make the excuse, making the mistakes in the past. So it's very interesting to see the character who's been formed and is now regressed because of the mistakes they made, and then to actually watch them make the mistakes. I think it's really fascinating. How about next we'll talk about Errol Childress, the oh, yeah. serial killer, and then also the Tuttle family, the Tuttle cult, and the Yellow King, how they all connect together, and then we'll go episode by episode and break the show down even more. Sounds wonderful. So Errol Childress was the serial killer that they did not catch in the 1990s and early 2000s, but eventually catch by the end of the show in the season in the present day timeline because you know rust has not given up on this investigation even though he's left law enforcement he's been doing his investigating on his own in his little storage unit but also he reels marty back in after their fallout telling marty that you have a debt we both have a debt to this case and also to the crimes that we committed while trying to solve it which we never officially did solve now El Childress. It was so brilliant, I think, to save him for really the end of the season. We get a little tease of him pretty early on when he's mowing the lawn outside of that church where we have Russ the school. The school we have Russ and talk to him just for a couple minutes, but then Marty honks his horn when they get a little. They get a lead on Reggie Ledoux to go find Ledoux, but you know we find out that that guy who was mowing that lawn, we find out by the end of episode seven that he is the serial killer because the other detectives go and find him and ask him for directions. He's They see him on this random patch of grass that he's also mowing at a cemetery. He gives them the instructions. He's, and they're like, oh, you know this place really well. Yeah, my family's been part of this country, this state for like two been years. Been here for, for, a, a, minute, long for a, year, a long time. time. And then obviously the camera is letting us know this guy is the killer. Lingering on him for such a long time, this eerie look going back to mowing the lawn. And then- Episode 8, going through the backstory and seeing the day-to-day life of Errol Childress and proving that he is the serial killer. Now, Errol Childress was was clearly very deranged, but also highly intelligent. He seems to be self-taught because like in that home where he's, he's uh, basically locked up in hiding, you could say in a lot of ways with, I think it's his half-sister who he has relations with. He seems to be self-taught because his house is he full makes of flowers flicks. on her. He makes me, you haven't made flowers on me in a while, but he's self-taught, seems highly intelligent, but he can quote books. He can quote literature. He also kind of has this obsession with TV and film kind of impersonating characters, specifically the British accent. He's very theatrical. He's also enormous and very strong. He's this giant of a human being. Now he was the bastard son of Ted Childress in an extramarital affair and Obviously, that makes him the grandson of Sam Tuttle, but this is all kept under wraps and kind of hidden, even though he also participated in the Tuttle cult when he was in his youth and then growing forward. He's kind of like the last surviving member of that cult, and you could say he's keeping up, he's keeping the Yellow King alive and keeping Carcosa alive. Now, as a child, Errol's father abused him in so many ways that resulted in his lower face being covered in those scars that throughout the whole show we have the description of the big man with the facial scar and we have the description in the drawing of the spaghetti face man with the green ears. Who is this person? It's such an eerie drawing. And then we find out later on that he had the green ears because he was painting that house for that woman. Also, the scarring from his father. That's why the kids described him as having a spaghetti face. And... As he grew up, he partook in the Tuttle cult and began to hang out with drug manufacturers Reggie and Dewalt Ledoux at one point, went on a hunting trip with them and their little cousin Jimmy Ledoux. Errol took a job as greenskeeper and general maintenance man for Childress & Sons who worked parish contracts for schools and churches. He lived in that sexual relationship with his mentally handicapped half-sister. Errol was one of the few unmasked men also who molested and took pictures of sleeping children at Shepherd's Flock Elementary School. He likely had a direct or indirect involvement in the disappearance and murder of Marie Fontenot. At some point, he was hired to paint a local family's house. That's where he got the green ears. And then he chased a girl through the woods, who with a scar face caused her to identify him as the green air spaghetti monster. Later that winter, Errol met Dora Lang through the traveling revival church tent. He began drugging, torturing, and sexually abusing her, eventually killing her and posing her in a cane field with the help of Reggie Ledoux. Errol would also abuse the captive children at the Ledoux meth lab compound. After Reggie was caught, it was assumed that Dorlang's killer was successfully caught, although Reggie was not, the Yellow King was not the killer. This was Errol, who they did not suspect and didn't know about. In 2005, after Hurricane Katrina, Errol successfully kidnapped and murdered many people in the wake of the chaos of the state. His murder spree was not registered as connected until 2012 when he killed a woman and posed her at Lake Charles in a similar way to Dora Lang. And that's where the interview is really interesting because these detectives are basically not necessarily interrogating, more interviewing Cole and Marty because they suspect that Rust could potentially be the serial killer based on his actions and behaviors in the last 20 years. Yeah, and also Errol obviously loves making these artistic designs with twigs and trees, the devil's nests. But also one of the biggest alerts to Rust that the killer is still out there is when he revisits Dora Lang's murder site, which is years later, it has now been decorated and adorned with a disturbing new art piece that basically like that circle the spiral circle going into the tree. And that was really the solidifying factor of making believe that the Yellow King killer was still out there because Errol, as a way of celebrating his act, made that design on the tree. We didn't see it happen, but he made this new decorative um, devil's nest, you could say, spiral decoration on that tree. Now, the Tuttles and the Childress, they are prominent members of the Louisiana community. We have Sheriff, Sheriff Ted Childress, who we never really I don't think we see in the show. Never. Unless he's the guy that's trapped inside that little... Uh, uh, what, what well, you, no, he's the, Errol's dad is Bill, Ted, Ted, Bill Childress. Billy Childress. No, no, no. Billy Billy Lee... There's no... Hold on. So there's no Bill T- Childress. You're thinking of Billy Lee Tuttle, the reverend. Now, Billy Lee Tuttle is not the father of Errol. So I'm sorry, who's... Whose number named? Who's information they, did they search in the DMV to get the address? It was Billy Childress, I thought. No, it was Ted Childress, the Ted. sheriff. And so, who's who's Errol's dad? Errol's dad is so he's the, so it's never completely clear, but I'm pretty damn sure he's the son of Ted Childress, and the grandson of Sam Tuttle. Now, Sam Tuttle's son is Billy Lee Tuttle, who's that very wealthy and powerful. Reverend, who has connections with the Senate of the of the state, as well as control over a lot of wealth and land in the state, because obviously that's a, a hint at the religious corruption of Billy Lee Tuttle and the Tuttles. So the cousin of Billy Lee Tuttle is Governor Edwin Tuttle. So they're connected because I guess you would say that he's technically kind of Errol Childress's uncle in a way or cousin. So because Ted Childress is the possible son of sam tuttle and then and then errol childress is the son of ted childress so um yeah he, errol is childress's son ted childress's yeah son. and, and Ch- childress is tuttle's half brother and sam tuttle's yeah. son yes yeah, so, yeah, so that's what it is exactly yeah, so, so they're connected he's he, he Childress's cousins son, or yeah. nephews or but some sort the thing of thing is errol errol tuttle was never errol childress was never documented and so there's there's no information of him ever even existing on paper. Yeah, so let's make let's make that a little more clear. So Sam Tuttle is the father of Ted Childress from another woman as well as Billy Lee Tuttle. Billy Lee Tuttle is the very powerful and wealthy reverend who is cousins with Senator Edwin Tuttle and then Ted Childress, the other son of Sam Tuttle, is the father of Errol Childress from another uh, in another infidelity case in another, ma- another woman. Exactly. And the way that they found Errol was through the light of the way DMV records from the registered business of the tax information. And the Childresses are just as corrupt as the Tuttle's. They're all very connected because we even have the jail guard, Officer Childress, who convinces, obviously, that inmate to kill himself in the security footage. He is a Childress. They're also connected to Steve Garacci, the the deputy sheriff, who they get on the boat to get more information about, but he's kind of just a pawn and just an ignorant pawn on purpose, just because he's getting paid off probably so much money. And then we also have the connection with Dolores Jackson, who was the Tuttle maid, who was part of Carcosa. That's the woman that they talked to the elderly woman. So these, this connection between the Tuttles and the Childress all connect down to Errol Childress. And ironically, You know, what they're trying to do is reveal this giant connection between the serial killer Errol Childress and the Tuttles who run the state of Louisiana, basically, in a lot of ways, with this VHS tape, this evidence, all these connections that they figured out that that Cole has been figuring out for the last 10 years inside of that uh, container storage unit at the end of the episode in the hospital bed after they catch Errol and kill him. Rust is watching the news report where the news says the... Law enforcement has law enforcement has said that there is no connection between Errol Childress and Sheriff Childress or the Tuttle family. Yeah, and so ultimately, like, did we even stop anything? Did we change it? Any- well, so they're not going to change anything, but they did stop a killer from killing yeah. innocent people. So they did the right thing, obviously. The Tuttle cult is composed of the Tuttle family again, the very powerful, influential dynasty. The cult's motives and beliefs are unknown, but they seem to worship Carcosa and the Yellow King through human sacrifice involving the sexual torture of dozens of children. You sound very excited as you read that. (laughs) (laughs) The Tuttles use their own elementary schools as fronts and their crimes go unnoticed and unpunished for decades thanks to a conspiracy tied with local police and even the government. One of the rituals is seen on tape where a total of nine cultists are visible, all disguised with animalistic Mardi Gras clothing. From 1995 to 2012, Detectives Ross Cole and Martin Hart gradually uncover the conspiracy of the cult, obviously culminating into the death and catching of bastard son Errol Childress, Carcosa, seems to be the name given to the old stone ruins in the Louisiana Bayou area where we see in season one's last episode is considered a place of worship in which macabre rituals were performed, often including child sacrifice and sexual abuse. The Yellow King can be looked at as a cosmic entity or deity and Errol Childress basically kind of takes on the persona of the Yellow King. And Rust obviously steals that videotape of one of the ritualistic killings of a little girl. From Tuttle's own home, yeah, which led to the death of him, yeah, because he had it in his safe, and you could say that Tuttle was using that as protection to not be killed because he had evidence on everybody else. Yeah, so it's, he either killed himself or someone killed him and posed it. And either way, it was going to happen with the with that tape disappearing. Yeah, you want to do a quick breakdown of each every each episode <laughs> oh, as well? Yeah, because oh, yeah. yeah, we might as well since we're, we're already going. two hours in. Like, Woo! why the hell not? Let's go. Oh. Fuck it. Fuck, Fuck it. it! Episode one was titled The Long, Bright, Dark, 8.9 rating on IMDb. In 2012, former detective partners Rust Cole and Martin Hart recapped one of their very first cases together involving a serial killer back in 1995. This is an absolutely terrific introduction to this incredible season of television. And I thought it was just a brilliant narrative structure to have this present-day interview structure cutting between... Uh, the entire storyline in the past in 1995. And it works so well seeing the the contrast of both men and how different they are visually, physically, emotionally, and personality-wise and tying it to this really disturbing, grisly murder. A lot of the first episode is really showcasing this first crime scene, the antlers, the woodwork, the spiral. We're getting a big amount of evidence here but it's really good. We don't see that many murder scenes in the in this show. It's really just this one and a couple others. But this is the big one, obviously that cat that the catalyst for the entire story going forward. So we do spend a lot of time with the initial investigation, investigative stages of stages of the physical site and of the body with the coroner. We have two scenes with the coroner in this film, and so I I like how this episode really sets the stage for the entire investigation and has all these clues that lure audience into what does all this mean? But they're all clues that really mean nothing yet now because there's no connection that they're able to ascertain at this point. (laughs) Yeah, so they're trying to figure, they don't know anything yet, but they have all these odd clues at this horrific murder scene. We also get background a little bit on Rust and Marty. Marty's a family man. He's got kids. He's got a wife. We have Rust. We learn how strange and odd he is in his apartment. Obviously, we talked earlier about how barren it is, except for that circular small mirror and the crucifix on the wall and an entire room full of criminology books as well. And Dora Lang is the first victim, and she's the dead body in the opening of the scene with the antlers. And so many of the first few episodes are them tracing Dora Lang's whereabouts and known um, people she's encountering. Friends, family, anyone she used to work with or know. And we get a lot of great police work. You know, you can see what the, they de- accurately depict what the grind of a detective is. It's not all gunfights and car chases. You ask, you're ask, you asking people questions left and right. You're interviewing dozens, hundreds of people. And sometimes these cases last a very long time. So you could interview hundreds of people over many years for some murder cases. And so I think the show did a der- terrific job of showcasing the... The banal part of the job how boring and tedious it can be and how also the most trivial small details could lead to a major clue and we see that oftentimes in this film and and one of the biggest clues that we learn about is just from interviewing someone who knew Dora Lang we learn about a missing girl Marie Fontenot and this is going to be a major point going forward in their investigation we got uh, quick sh- uh, introduction of Reverend Tuttle as well, who it's such a great character because it's this man that's using faith as kind of suit of armor of who he hiding who he truly is deep down and also to use to acquire great wealth, status, and power and maintain that for this Tuttle family because, you know, you, you don't think of someone religious or a pastor or a man of faith, a man of the cloth, you could say. Walking around with the most expensive suit in every room he's in, but that is Sam Tuttle. He's very wealthy. You can tell the way he dresses, his, his office, the building he's in later on that we see. So we get introduced to him, who's putting pressure on this investigation. For some odd reason. He, and this causes the director to create a task force specializing in investigating this uh, as well as the two detectives. This is also the episode where Cole, I mean, Marty invites Cole the to dinner. The dinner episode, but he, yeah. But he shows up drunk because yeah. it's the same date of his daughter's death or birthday. I think birthday. Same. So January 3rd is the day his daughter died, so it's gotcha. the exact same date. And they did a great job of establishing that these. it's not like these two men are this is the first case they're working together. They've been working together for months now and Marty just with a quick line of dialogue says I can't keep you can't keep putting off Maggie like this and you got so he's clearly asked Rust over for dinner many times over like the last couple of months so we we understand that the two of them have been working together for a while and also Marty says you can't choose your family you can't choose your partner <laughs> <laughs> and so in a lot of ways Marty feels like he's stuck with this weird guy and then Rust is like Just happy to be a detective, especially when we learn about his past, how difficult his path has been in the police force. He wanted to have like a steady job as a detective. So this is actually where he wants to be. And he doesn't mind Marty. He doesn't really mind anyone. He just doesn't like anyone. Whereas Marty can't stand him. They also interrogate Charlie Lang, who's already in prison, about his wife who was killed. And then we also learn that he was cellmates with... Reggie Ledoux, right? Or yeah. one of Yeah. He Ledoux's. was cellmates with Reggie. Yeah. Well, no, Reggie. Or yeah, because one of the Ledoux, one of the Ledouxs is later on that they talk to that Marty talks to, right? Yeah. So there's Dual Ledoux, and then Reggie Ledoux is the person who was cellmates with gotcha. with Charlie. Gotcha. Ooh, that's, no. but that's the, the the last bit of the episode. Yeah. Episode two is called "Seeing Things." This is an 8.8 on IMDb. Cole and Hart are, uh, travel around trying to track down leads to their case. Darker side. Oh, I'm sorry. There's a shot I want to talk about. Yeah, go for it. So in of, of episode, episode one. one. So they have that philosophical debate in the car, Marty and Rust talking about religion and nihilism and all that stuff. And it's like a great three minute scene. Also, the show, you got to give them, they did an amazing job and you got to commend them. I can't, I don't think they use any green screen in the car scenes. I think there was a couple. There might have been maybe just for pickup shots, but for the most part, they really were filming the actors on location in the car. Yeah. And they did, it just looks fantastic. But there's one sequence in particular this first big philosophical debate they have about religion. And in the background, they're on this freeway. They're in the like, middle of Louisiana, driving on this two lane freeway. And in the background are telephone poles passing by in the background. But the telephone poles are crucifixes, they're shaped exactly like crucifixes. And literally, dozens of them go by the screen in the background as they're driving up this freeway debating religion and faith. And I thought it was such a great motif visually to put it in. That's not an accident, that's planned. And that was, that freeway was selected for that reason. Fukunaga wanted to put that in there. And it's just, if you watch that scene again, and you'll notice all hundreds of crucifixes fly by in the background, it's really great. That's really crazy. I never noticed that. Episode 2, Seeing Things, rated on IMDb at an 8.8. Marty and Russ travel around trying to track down leads to their case. Darker sides of Hart's personal and family lives are revealed. We have great debates in the car in this episode. We start to have Russ seeing his hallucinations from his undercover work, taking all those hard drugs that have warped and changed his brain so much. Questioning anyone who knew the victim of the murders... But also, we learned that Rust worked undercover for four years in Narco. And and he's like, even to the detectives, even you guys. You guys didn't even know that? Man. So his file is closed and sealed. So nobody knows that he did this undercover work. And we'll learn, obviously, more about it. But he was undercover with a biker gang, selling hard drugs, committing crimes. Like, hard, hard shit. And I like how the hallucinations they're not just like a gimmick it's really tied to you know what he did to his body and what he did to his brain and it's, it's really fascinating and my favorite hallucination is probably the the flock of birds in uh, episode four it's really fantastic i think the heaven's parting for me is my favorite hallucination yeah, that's a cool one too we also get to see the ethics and morality of the way that marty and rust work and how different they are like rust in this episode he beats people for information mm-hmm. while they're trying to track information down, as well as we see how he's using prostitutes and sex workers to get information as well as also to get drugs for himself. And also, Rust, this is where Marty learns that Rust is a uh, former father and had a wife. So it's in, in the car, uh, Rust tells Marty, I, I, I had a kid once, and I was married once. Where And then Marty actually, it's really... Heartfelt moment where Marty is really surprised and shocked, and he really feels a lot of empathy and feels so much sadness for Rust. But obviously, like, Rust is barely even accepts it, he's like barely even acknowledges it. But this is in this episode, it's when Rust tells him that we see a lot. We also learn of Marty's infidelity with Lisa, and we can only assume that this is not the first young girl that he's cheating on his wife with. Yeah, because Lisa is a stenographer for the court. For the courthouse and then so in that episode earlier in the episode she comes into the precinct for some files for Marty to look through and then Marty takes it upon himself like oh let's go in this private room so nobody can see us. And you you can tell that this is an example that any opportunity Marty's probably ever had to be with the woman he's probably acted on it. So Lisa definitely isn't the first time. We also see the greenhouse, which is really interesting. Just to see for, this early a, for like a second. It's crazy. We have uh, relationship issues between Maggie and Marty and their fights that they're having because of Marty's infidelity that she probably she doesn't know yet, but obviously something's going on. She's suspecting. They, they mostly fight about Marty being a changed person and having no time for his family and not being the Marty she married anymore. And we also get our first reformed... <laughs> church clue. Going so forward. so this is where they find the yellow flyer at the sex worker property. One of them had that flyer and suggested check out this this church, the first reformed church, and this is going to be the, sh- the church that Shea Wiggum's character um, is the pastor of. Is this the episode where they go to the secret sex worker yeah, place? Is they that, go to what, both. What's great full circle for this episode is to see that young girl who years later is working at like a, a phone store, like a T-Mobile store, and Marty reconnects with her, and obviously because yeah. he's Marty, he sleeps with her. Yeah. And so the First phone Church is actually going to be an important clue because Dora Lang, like you said earlier, met Errol there. Great point. Great stuff. Moving on to episode three of Truth- Oh, so I'm sorry. There's a, the Burn Church. Okay, so we get uh, the next Devil's Nest is found there, as well as the mural on the wall, and then. This is actually this burned church. It's actually a reference to uh, Tarkovsky's film um, *Evens Childhood*. The church looks, the burned church in that film is. This is basically the set is an exact replica of the set from that film. Um, I'll put it on the screen if you want to see it, but it's really I, when I saw it, I was like, oh my god, that's a great reference. Sick. I was like, sick reference, bro. Your references are out of control. Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about the new pieces of evidence they find throughout this season is they're always like on the edge of getting taken off the case and it being given mm-hmm. to the task force until the last minute always find something to stay on the case and keep it going, yeah. like this church. Moving on to episode three, The Locked Room. This is a 9.1 on IMDb. Rust and Marty finally get a new new end on a case and confirm a suspect. Martin's mistress gets on with somebody else, leaving him furious. <laughs> and Rust's theory becomes increasingly more convincing than ever about the connection with the Tuttles and everything going yeah. on. So this episode opens with them actually at the First Reformed Church, the tent church outdoors. And this is where Rust and Marty debate religion and people who have faith and while the service is going on, it, because they're waiting for the pastor, Shea Wiggum's character, to finish up. And once the the mass is finished, they t- chat with him to learn, and with the, uh, the others as well, to learn anything about Dora. And this is where they learn that Dora actually saw, the girls who also work for the church, they saw Dora with a man with scars on his face. And this is also comes into play where Marty thinks that Rust is trying to force a narrative based upon the evidence, rather than letting the evidence tell us the narrative and waiting until we have enough evidence to try and form an opinion. Marty thinks that Rust is trying to make it, make a story out of connecting things that more so are su- circumstantial than straight evidence. We get some more information about Rust, and like every episode we get a little more on him and, and Marty. Mm-hmm. And we learn about his talents as a box man, really, in this episode, where he's able to get... Confessions out of people for crimes really easily, and this is the episode where he makes the mother co- confess to killing her child. Right, or is that another one? That's after. That's the um, episode six. Okay, gotcha. Yes, this is the one where he gets um, just that that other guy with some scars on his face. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To so confess to a crime, and he's like, "You just admitted to a double murder, you fucking idiot." <laughs> <laughs> we also have the double date scene where Maggie tries to set rust up with one of her girlfriends at this like rodeo uh, restaurant and i want to go there those places look fun they look like a blast at the same time lisa is there marty sees her and gets super jealous that how could she be out on a date with somebody else well i'm here with my wife like how dare her how dare she betray me like that and that's the night where he gets blackout drunk and goes to her apartment and breaks in and assaults the man that she's with and everything like that it's crazy did she suck your cock only a little only a little (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's so funny he's such a psycho he's such a psycho oh my god and then also Russ found a new cold case that could fit the bill there's actually like three three times where marty comes into the office with messy hair didn't sleep in his own bed, and he gets shit from the other detectives about it. This is one of those instances, and then Russ, is, Russ couldn't care less. He's like, I got new evidence to show you. Come check this out. <laughs> so he found this old cold case that has evidence that they're looking for. So look, this cold case was thrown out. It was determined that this girl who was found in a creek, um, she it was determined that she was high on drugs, fell into the creek and died, and she had some bruising and uh, markings on her body that was chalked up to... Um, damage caused by branches and nature around her but they failed to explain the incision wounds in her abdomen there were many stab wounds there so rust became immediately suspicious because it kind of fit the bill and then it she on on the back of her shoulder she had that spiral symbol that was also on dora lang's body so now rust and marty believe that this is definitely the same killer also she was high on Fentanyl and also the meth, which all the same all the victims are always high on for this serial killer. Exactly. And this led them to Light of the Way Academy the closed down school where this fenced off and Russ goes up to speak to the groundskeeper who's mowing the lawn. And they have this quick little conversation. And this, as we know later on in the show, is Errol Childress, the serial killer. However, as great of a detective and as smart he as he is, Rust fails to see that this person could be a culprit. And it's because a couple of things, he feels really guilty about it when they survive at the end because he's like, man, I saw him. It was the guy mowing the lawn at the school. So he didn't see him because Errol's sitting down on the lawnmower. He never stood up. So Rust never really saw his true size because they were looking for a large man with scars. That's kind of... They were already on that track. On the bottom of his face. On the he's bottom. Also, I think he was wearing a hat, too. So, so He's not wearing a hat, but he's got a pretty big beard. But also, the scarring on his face is mostly on the right side of his face. Mostly on the right chain and neck. And so, in that scene, he's looking at Cole with his left side. is facing Cole. So, on top of that, there's actually a moment. It's actually choreographed really perfectly and edited perfectly. So... When Russ is talking to Errol, just about the school, when it closed down and what have you, about the comp- the uh, parish, um, Marty gets a, a beat and a lead, and he starts honking inside the car down the, parked on the street. And so right when the honking starts, Russ turns to look at Marty. Errol also turns, and then you can see the scarring really well because he turns, revealing the right side of his face. And that's really where the bulk of his scarring is. But Russ never saw it because he just never saw that side of his face. And so that's why this groundskeeper went uh, past Cole undetected. Really great stuff. Yeah. We also had the lead on Reggie Ledoux, who is a cellmate of Charlie Lang. And we get the reveal of Reggie Ledoux. That's who Marty goes and roughs up for information at that club. So um, Marty roughs up Weeman, okay. who reveals that Ledoux had a meth, has a meth... Um, he is selling meth for the Iron Crusaders, and that's so that's their lead. They're looking for Ledoux, looking for Reggie Ledoux. Weems says he's he's making meth for some biker gang. They're called the Iron Crusaders. Oh yeah, that's leading to one of the coolest scenes of the season. And so Marty calls Rust. He's like, "Oh, okay, okay, this guy said he's working for the Iron Crusaders." And then Rust is like, "Fuck, did you say the Iron Crusaders? <laughs> is that right?" He's like, "Yeah, that's what he said." And then then Rust opens up this giant metal box in his house. Filled with guns, an old biker leather jacket, grenades, grenades, some uh, some whiskey, and it's like, what the hell is going on with this guy? It's crazy. In a flask, and then we <clears throat> we get a final shot of the the final shot of the episode is a reveal of Reggie Ledoux on his property. Almost naked, wearing this gas mac gas mask in the middle of nowhere, clearly a very suspicious person. That's where the episode ends. Gotcha, right? Yeah, Regula do the other big guy, which is why they think he's their yeah. person. Mm-hmm. Episode four: Who goes there? This is a nine point six on IMDb. Marty is faced with more marital problems. The search for Regula do leads the detectives to a motorcycle gang called the Iron Crusaders in Rust. Work. We learn that. Rust worked undercover with them in the past. This is an intense episode because you know they're they're finally catching a lead and they have a suspect and Rust takes a leave of absence from this case which is really odd. He uses it, his father's sickness as a cover for it, but really he's doing it as an opportunity to go back undercover to get what information they can really get from the Iron Crusaders, going back as that person he once was, going back into drugs, going back into alcoholism and getting basically as fucked up as possible to blend in and get back into that role of being an undercover person inside this gang. And meanwhile, Marty comes home to find that Maggie left him with the kids. Left the kids. Left with the kids. <laughs> left with the kids. And he reads a note that she left revealing that Lisa told Maggie about their affair. And so he's trying to deal with that. And then, it's funny because he tries to enter like the, the Iron Crusaders party and gets kicked out pretty quickly because he's... He doesn't blend in that well, and they cl- clearly know he's an outsider. They probably don't think he's a cop, but he's definitely not an insider. And Rust, and McConaughey's performance in this, is terrific because he knows Ginger from the past, and so he, got, he basically has to convince everyone that he's straight, that he's not suspicious at all. So he basically explains that he took two slugs in the side, he got escorted to Mexico, got fixed up, and he's been working with the cartel down there, and now they have a huge amount of drugs that they can trade off with the Iron Crusaders, Ginger likes this idea, and he also trusts Cole after he has him uh, snort some of the meth. But also, Cole steals high-end cocaine yes. from evidence and brings it to him yes. and gives it to him for free. Exactly, as a gift. So he blends in perfectly and seals the deal as of convincing Ginger that he's, he's legit. And then Ginger agrees to this deal, but he needs a gunslinger for this robbery he's been planning. And he wants Cole on board. And if Cole does this for him, then he'll carry out the deal. Now, the whole point of this entire thing for Rust is to locate Reggie Ledoux. And so he's willing to do whatever it takes. So then he goes with Ginger. And then the craziest part, probably the craziest part of the season happens the long take, incredible, masterful filmmaking of uh, the attempted robbery and then eventual kidnapping of Rust, kidnapping Ginger in that neighborhood. It's so sensational and it's incredible all the moving pieces in this neighborhood that they had going on not to mention helicopters so many vehicles so many extras all had to be on point mm-hmm. take after take i can only imagine how many takes it took or how many days rehearsals, they rehearsals pa- yeah. practicing and rehearsing this entire sequence because it's really complex lots of different interiors and exteriors not to mention the camera work and sound work was excellent but So many moving parts, so many weapons being fired, so many lines of dialogue. You get one thing wrong, you have to do the whole thing all over again. Mm -hmm. Fight sequences, fight choreography, shooting choreography— it's really sensational filmmaking. It's not completely perfect. There's a few punches here and there that, like, oh, he didn't really There's a couple of rust punches, doesn't, yeah. It doesn't connect, like, on the lawn, but it is yeah. what it is. You you accept it because you understand how complex this is yeah. and how incredible it looks in the final turnout. Yeah, I think it's fantastic, and it was like very reminiscent of Children of Men. I think that Fukunaga was really inspired by that, for sure. It's But it's a standout um, for of filmmaking in TV in general. There's a few great pieces of long practical filmmaking shots in this in this show i think one of my other favorites it's it's pretty simple but it's at the cemetery after i believe the other detectives stumble upon errol mowing the lawn gives him the information that he says that weird line and then i think i think it's the end of that episode where fukunaga gets a shot of the lake or the river and yeah they they Bring the camera up over the trees to the boat. Yeah, yeah. As I was about to say, sorry, <laughs> sorry. So you looked like you were you lost your no, because you you looked like you were about to say something. Oh well, you looked like you were like uh the lake uh the river. Uh, I was saying it so well. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but yeah, they. That's a good long take. <laughs> Just had to get in there. <laughs> um, but again, back to this episode and the sequence, absolutely phenomenal stellar. And it ends bad where obviously Russ knows that these guys did not plan an escape route. They're going into a place where there's only one entrance and one exit, really. It's a horrible plan. He knows it's going to turn out bad. He eventually gets him and Ginger out of there alive, avoiding suspicion of the police because there's so much chaos going on in the neighborhood. They get out of there. He gets Ginger in the back of the car, get, get picked up by Marty. It's a great conclusion to this incredible scene. And it's it's great conflict because if Russ... There's no way out of the situation except with Marty because if the cops catch him, he's a criminal. You know, even though he's a cop, he's he's a criminal. He's committing crimes right now. There's no way to get him out of that. And if the other criminals catch him, he's dead. So the stakes are so high in this moment for Cole to not just get out of there, but to also to get Ginger out and to get out of that neighborhood alive and undetected. I found it to be so thrilling. It's such a great sequence. Love it so much. Moving on to the next episode. Let's do it. All right, episode five, The Secret Fate of All Life. This is a 9.5 on IMDb. And be, mind you, these reviews are eight years later, nine years later of ratings keeping this show this high. It's incredible. Hart and Cole share the spoils of a solved case. Papanya and Gilbo confront the detectives with troubling new evidence. And the episode opens, we forgot to mention that Marty's daughter in the previous episode um, Marty brought her home because she was found by police with two 19-year-old boys in one of their cars, and she's only 16. Starlight from the boys, yeah. Erin um, Moriarty, it's crazy. It's, I never, I always like, I always thought I recognized her from oh, something. Oh, I was Leo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep, yep, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode opens where Marty walks into the holding cells of the police precinct, and the two teenage, the two 19-year-old boys are in the cell. And Marty is just there to beat the crap out of them. Well, he gives them the option. Either we can process you as a a rape case, or you can just let me beat the fuck out of you and get this over with. Oh my god, it's insane. And he puts on those, like, protective gloves for himself, and holy— Like, because they cut it early, like, imagine what damage he did to them. This show does a great job of showing the corruption in the police force, not only with something like that, but also— in the previous episode when russ steals the evidence he just gets the key from the other detective and he goes in and steals an entire what couple pounds of coke yeah and he leaves he locks up he's like they really should have a better system for this <laughs> 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 but this is a great instance of corruption of power where you know you no know, everyone's gonna all the cops know what he's doing in there they know what he's gonna do the to these guys and they just let it happen, and there's really no—there's nothing that these two guys can do to get out of the situation or protect themselves in any way. It also shows this, this episode how far away Marty is pushing his children away. You know, his his daughter's acting out like this because of him. This is, like, the personality she's taking on, you can say, in a lot of ways, to try to get attention from him. You could, you could analyze. Mm-hmm. That's why she's acting out. That's why she's doing things like this. And when she's basically, you could say, maybe these are cries for help. What's he do? He pushes her away even further. And also, she could probably, she's possibly, since she's not getting attention from a father, she's seeking out the attention of other men in dangerous ways. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then also, Rust is investigating more missing persons cases. And Marty cheats on Maggie again. What a dick. This time with the girl from earlier uh, who now works at T-Mobile? <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear about uh, Ryan Reynolds Mint Mobile? What about you? It? Know how he owns yeah, that? Yeah, he yeah. sold it to I can't remember which other network for 1.3 billion dollars. What the fuck? So he was just he just grabbed everybody cheap, cheap, then sold that company like crazy. Oh Holy my god! Man. 1.3 bill. I guarantee they're gonna jack up their prices. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Well, now all yeah. those customers are gonna be part of whatever service it is that that's so bought it. So much money! I can't remember what company it was. Ryan Reynolds is a smart guy. <laughs> that's good business, I guess. Damn, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> that's money. That's a lot of money. I'm sure he's not getting all of it, but you know, he's oh, yeah, got yeah, partners yeah, and obviously everything. Yeah, but yeah, still, yeah. he probably is pulling like a cool half a mil- half a bill. I bet. And this episode opens with the culmination of Rust's entire undercover sequence of Rust and Ginger are meeting with DeWall Ledoux, who is Reggie's brother. And Rust is putting forward this fake deal that he has planned. And he knows that Reggie's going to say no to it. But the whole point of this entire meeting is for just to get to Reggie. I'm sorry, DeWall's going gonna, to uh, reject it. They just want to get to Reggie. And so when DeWall rejects this deal and takes off, Marty follows him home because he knows that Reggie will be there. So Marty follows DeWall all the way through dozens and dozens of miles of freeway through through Louisiana. And then he manages to stop on the property of the, the Ledoux property where DeWall and Reggie are both holed up in their really messed up home. And this is a really important episode, not only because we have this incredible flashback of the truth of what happened at this supposed shootout that they had when they went after Reggie Ledoux, but also the detectives that are interviewing them, Papania and Gilbo, they tell Marty that basically rust is a suspect in this case now that is still an active investigation because we have a new murder now they suspect that rust could potentially be the serial killer in hiding all these years they have photos of him being at the site of the most recent murder five times a month before the murder took place and he was also at the scene of the crime uh, among the public watching the murder and so he seems to be the number one suspect. And these two detectives, they suspect that it's poss- it's highly possible that Rust did all of the killings. And that's why he knew these weird clues that nobody else could connect and kept moving the case forward and the investigation forward in these strange ways that ended up being right. And so they think that Rust is responsible for all of it. It's really interesting. and But it, it seems like... Even Marty can't be convinced. He, they're kind of getting suspicions up in there, but he's like, there's no effing way that Rust is a serial killer or did any of this. I was with him all those years. But we also have the incredible sequence where they take down Reggie Ledoux and Duo Ledoux. And this is where they get to that compound after Marty tracks him. And of course, Marty's like, we should probably like call for backup. And like Cole's <laughs> like, yeah, you should probably go back and do that. And like, there's no way I'm letting you do this alone. And they have a solid plan. You know, they're going to try and breach this this compound, basically, you could say, where there's a house and a couple buildings. Clearly, the meth lab is there. They have no idea what to expect, but they know Reggie Ledoux is there and Duo Ledoux is there. And so they get into there. It's a really great sequence of them sneakily getting into the house and getting Reggie at gunpoint on his knees. Marty goes out back. We don't see what he sees inside that room, but he comes out and just blasts Reggie in the head. No questions asked. Execution, yeah. And then they have to try to take out Dua Ladoo, who actually blows himself up with his own explosives. (laughs) Now, this is a double homicide by these two detectives. However, because we have such an intelligent person here with Cole, Russ Cole comes up with the idea immediately, take those cuffs off off him before the blood settles. We have to make this look right. Go inside, take care of those kids that you found until I tell you otherwise – And he makes it look like there was a war zone with an AK-47 blasting and firing bullets in all directions. And they clearly came up with this incredible story that's all a lie that they've been holding on to for their entire lives. And both give perfect and accurate and connecting details with on their own testimony and interviews, both present time and past past timeline, of what they said happened versus what we eventually see truly happened. And the thing is, Rust didn't have to do that. He didn't have to pose the scene. He could have, if he wanted to do the right thing, the right thing would have been to, like, arrest Marty on the spot. You know what I mean? So it's it's so, it's so such a great character trait. He he chose to, first he was about to kill DeWall until DeWall got blown up, but then he, because he immediately, without thinking, decided to help Marty and to get him out of this without hesitation. Also, I think because I think he maybe wanted to kill these guys deep down. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have to do this. There's, he he would have been gotten off scot free and innocent if he had like turned Marty in after this. So I love how Russ decides immediately to help Marty out and to pose this fake scene of a shootout. And I, this is just two amazing back to back episodes because it went from that long take sequence last episode, and within a few minutes of this episode, we got this amazing sequence. It was just back to back episodes of television that were so incredible. It's such a rare thing to see. And they think they got their guy. They think they got the killer. This tall man. It's clearly a meth lab. They had kidnapped two children out back who were abused and sexually abused for who knows how long they've been inside that room. One of them died less than 24 hours before they got there. The other one survived. We see her later on in the season and she's incredibly emotionally disturbed. And they think they caught the killer and they think they're done with the investigation. They're heroes. Even the audience believes it. Guy's got Reggie's got blonde hair. He's saying this weird philosophical stuff. He's got these crazy tattoos. And also Charlie Lang said that Reggie Ledoux told him there was there's lots of good killing in New Orleans after the hurricane. So it seems to be, even for the audience, we accepted it. Just another serial killer meth dealer. Yeah. And unfortunately for them, it's not the killer. And then obviously they have their their separation in two thousand and two after they get their fight. And I guess we can say we're moving on to episode six right now. Or actually, we can still talk a little bit more. We have um, Maggie and Marty are back together temporarily. They're trying to work it out. We have that prisoner who kills themselves in jail Mm -hmm. because, as we revealed earlier, a Childress is one of those uh, corrections officers and says something to him inside that jail cell. And you don't notice that until you see the blood on the floor. But also, this episode, episode five, is where the the next time jump happens to Russ being short-haired maggie and marty are together and the case has been solved they're heroes and then rust is now dating laurie but still he's still doing the box room thing where he's still getting people to confess to crimes and then this is an example where he's trying to get a criminal to confess to a crime and the criminal mentions yellow king and this is a years old case how could someone mention the yellow king again how would anyone know exactly what that is, unless they knew information? And so this is this is what sparks Rust to start his inve- investigation again, and this is what causes him because after the prisoner kills himself, he just becomes obsessed. So he goes to the first prison, he goes to the first murder scene, Dora Lang's murder scene, to that tree, and it has now been decorated and adorned with this new wood sculpture. Obviously, Errol did this nobody knows what this was it was never told anyone but this is what sparked russ to start his investigation again seeing that the killer's out there because the killer clearly made this new decoration on the tree episode six is called the haunted house this is a 9.2 on imdb Russ's activities in 2002 when his partnership with Hart and quit the force disintegrated are recalled by maggie and the others and so We have the situation where we learn of their fight, and in 2002, they had their falling out. Rust was used by Maggie to hurt Marty so that Maggie could finally eventually leave her marriage and have another excuse to leave because she found out in this time jump that Marty was still cheating on her, this time with that young girl that works at the T-Mobile, Mint Mobile store that was once that sex worker at that secret brothel that they went to get some information from years before, And so she leaves, she's able to use something to leave Marty and uses Cole and destroys their relationship and their partnership in order to get out of her marriage. Yeah, because she knows that Marty will never be able to forgive her for sleeping with Rust. That's why she, so she just, she chose Rust. And like she's been used by men in her life, she finally used some, she finally used the men in her life. And unfortunately, even though they think they've solved the case and then... Obviously, the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina strikes Louisiana. This is used into the story really brilliantly, where because of the chaos of what was going on in the state, nobody noticed all of these murders that were happening between 2005 and 2012 until Russ Cole started putting things together and these other detectives started getting uh, these cases that were cropping up that looked so similar to the ones in the past. But also before the Maggie situation, Russ and Marty were getting very antagonistic with one another because... Rust got that confession out of that mother who killed her baby, and when he gets that, when he gets her to write the confession, he gives it to Marty. Tells him to type it up. That's basically all you're good for. And then they get in a great debate over their each of their importance to the to the precinct. And clearly, Marty's insecure about how good Rust is at his job. And they have a fight. And this is the before they have their real fight. So they they've been on edge with one another for probably a few years now, leading up to this conclusion with Maggie. What does he say to him? He says, "Uh, there, there is no you without me. He says that to yeah, Marty. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Which is true in a lot of ways. And so Rust, like we said earlier from the last episode, with that new evidence, he finds that new decoration sculpture on the tree. He also found a new devil's nest in the school. So clearly the killer's still out there. He has began. He's begun his investigation. He's a couple years in now, and he visits one of the he visits the girl who survived the Ladue farm, and tries to talk to her. And then he asks, "Do you remember a man with scars?" And then she starts screaming viciously, and she has to be subdued by the staff there. So clearly, he's definitely onto something. He also goes to interview Tuttle, which we he set up as an innocent conversation to get some tax records, but he begins pushing Tuttle about the. Uh, abuse claims on the church and then that gets him in real hot water with his superior eventually rust is um, fired from duty because he's being told by first asada and then the other superior officers that to stop digging up this old case and stop asking questions the case has been solved and Tuttle's so well connected that you know if you keep asking questions something bad's going to happen they eventually get suspended and also what's really great is marty when he learns that the detectives are trying to make a case about Cole he immediately rejects it he knows that even though Cole is weird as hell he's not the killer he knows that for a fact and he leaves the interview and he says I'm not going to help you guys and then Rust um, follows him and eventually pulls him over and he's like Get a drink. And then Mario says, All right, let's get a drink. Maggie also refuses to tell the detectives the real reason of why their partnership ended so poorly and they had that big falling out and huge fight in 2002. Good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. How about we move on to episode seven? Let's go. After you've gone. This is a 9.2 on IMDb. marty and rust try to discover if a series of missing persons reports could be related to dorling dorling's murder in the tuttle family now they're you know working together they both have left the interviews you know rust is like all right i'm out of here basically i'm done Mm -hmm. and then and also marty's like this is ridiculous like basically this is ridiculous you're dicking me around for what you think rust did there's no way rust is involved with these murders and then rust basically tells marty everything he knows so far he knows that the yellow king's out there and still alive. He also shows Marty his crazy evidence room at that storage unit. And he also reveals that he believes strongly that the Tuttle's are connected and the schools and the churches are also connected, that this is a big conspiracy and it's so much larger than just a serial killer. It's much bigger than that. And he also shows Marty the videotape that he stole from Tuttle's safe at his home. That was such a cool sequence to see him, like, Break down the way he broke into the Tuttle's home yeah I love and, that into the safe and everything that it was, was really an cool. awesome one and then obviously this is where tuttle Tuttle gets killed right um he either killed himself or he gets killed it's yeah. never it's never fully explained because the tape is gone yeah but Marty and Russ basically join forces Marty is convinced and because I think that Marty now feels guilty as well because he learns from Russ that there are so many killings that fit the bill of the Yellow King that occurred over the last decade that they're responsible for because they were supposedly the heroes who caught this man, and he's still out there. And they're taking advantage also of Marty's connections in all the police departments by... Having those situ- those uh golf lessons golf first with Garachi then going on the boat and asking questions because Marty deduces that this guy is lying, and then they they learn from Garachi after they show him the videotape that Sheriff Ted Childress ordered a stop on the investigation of these murders and connections, and they're also learning that there the man with scars is related to the Tuttles somehow or the Childresses, and that it's he's not. He's more of like a bastard kid. He wasn't one of the tuttles they determine in this episode And also they talked to that mechanic who when he was a kid doing work with that family he remembers um, a man with scars staring at him and smiling at him the entire time And the woman who got her house painted Yeah, exactly. The woman who got her house painted remember that a man with scars painted her house And this is where Marty makes a connection Remember that greenhouse? It, doesn't that look like a fresh cone of paint? So it would explain where the green comes from on the man's face and from the description from the kids who saw him. And so they're deducing that the person who painted the house is the killer and that he got green paint on him from painting that house. And the other detectives, like we talked about earlier, are asking for instructions. They find this guy mowing a lawn at a cemetery, ask him for instructions, gives him a creepy answer Well, they drive away abruptly. My family's been around here for a long time, and he stands up, and he's huge, and he's got scars all over his face. Oh, my God. What a great ending, because you're like, oh, my God, it's the groundskeeper! (laughs) It's (laughs) Hagrid! I remember, that's an episode, the cliffhanger was so good, I remember everybody was talking about it for a week, and everybody was hotly anticipating the finale. So good. Because so many, you know, I feel like so many filmmakers and studios and writers are Bring him in so much earlier. And besides just that one scene he has where he's mowing the lawn talking to Russ, they would have him like have substantial screen time and maybe even see the murders he's committing. And also, I think sometimes with some shows, they try too hard to end on a huge cliffhanger too often. Oh, I agree. Whereas this show, there there are a couple big cliffhangers, but they end really well. And it's not always on like a crazy cliffhanger because sometimes it can get overwhelming. They can stretch it too far, and it's just like – it doesn't always have to be like, oh, what the fuck moment. (laughs) Like this is that moment in the – like this is the big one in the show, and it was – it's like – it's more powerful, I think. I think so too because obviously they're – they always end mildly on cliffhangers. Like even the episode five after the long take, it ends with after Rust and Marty had just kidnapped – what's his name? Uh, Ginger. Ginger, yeah. And we see uh, the the helicopter shot of the neighborhood in chaos. That's how the episode ends. It's a cliffhanger, but also not like, oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Gonna, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I agree completely. The final episode of True Detective Season 1, Episode 8, Form and Void, a 9.2 on IMDb. An overlooked detail provides Rust and Marty with an important new lead in their 17-year-old case. I thought it was so smart. To open this episode with the man with scars with Errol, and you're seeing a day in his life of keeping his dad's corpse in that room in the shed, of seeing the house of the they're basically hoarders and there's tr- trashed books, knickknacks all over the place. It's it's just a, you can you can like smell it just on the from looking at it on the screen. You know what I mean? He has this incestuous relationship with his half sister. He's also like you said earlier bizarrely intelligent like he's very smart and he showcases his intelligent and his adeptness with using this british accent that he's gotten from tv um there's but there's without without a doubt an insanity there overriding everything um and not much is explained about him but we do know we we have learned from watching the show that he was abused by his father uh, they don't go into detail about how he was abused, but that's how he got the scarring on his face. But you can only imagine what kind of abuse created such a monster. Yeah, and we get the connection with the greenhouse, the green ears. It's all starting to make sense, and they're starting to put these connections together. between that The information they get from Garachi from the past episode that Errol Childress, they discover his his name. They discover this person in the DMV, right, and how he's on the records, on the tax records, I mean, of working on the crews that were doing the things like fixing up the churches and doing the groundskeeping at all these different sites that the tuttles were in control of and also garachi explains that sheriff childress he changed the file of a juvenile case that uh, garachi was investigating and basically chalked it up uh threw away the key and Garachi had no idea what happened with it. He tried to question it, but then the chain of command made him refuse. And so that's where the men suspect Childress big time, and it's going to lead them to searching through the DMV records. And also the Light of the Way Church, it's their tax records which get them the information of the address of where Errol is living. And they find the house, and they get there. And I love when they get out of the car, and Rust is like, this is the place. Yeah, yeah, he knows immediately. It yeah. is scary because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, this guy is huge. He's dangerous. He's a killer. And this house is so crazy looking and a mess and creepy. It's like a haunted house in a lot of ways. But I love how they go through the – the sequence is incredible. Going through the house, Marty takes uh, subdues the half-sister, and then Russ goes after Um, Errol, Errol. – into the, the maze basically of Carcosa that they discover because this property is so huge and then they find this crazy underground structure that's been buried by the grass and, and the grasslands and, and the overgrowing vegetation of Louisiana and how it's just so hidden and we see all these crazy wooden structures and halls and, and tunnels built by, you can assume, Errol and the cult of the tunnels. Yeah, I mean, this is where the tunnels and that cult would carry out their rituals. Yeah. So it was built probably decades ago. And that's why all the, the tree and, and foliage has just overgrown it now. And Errol's basically, like I said, he's probably the last surviving member of this cult that was a part of it. And he's keeping Carcosa and the Yellow King alive. And it's so intense because Rust and Marty get split up, obviously. Uh, they do a great job of filming the sequence. It's scary. It's unnerving hearing Errol's voice. Uh, echoing through the halls and rust not knowing no not knowing where he could be coming from and then we get to that big chamber and that's where rust hallucinates and you think it's you say it's the heavens opening up could be i look at it as like dimension opening up other because di- he mentions other dimensions a couple of times so i think it's something like that what if rust can't understand that the other dimension could be the afterlife oh uh, yeah that's a good point it's a good point and that's what that's what gives Errol the 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 opportunity to attack him. And what I like about this fight is it's not completely obvious that the detectives are going to win, and it's brutal. I mean, he stabs he stabs Rust and picks him up th- with that knife, and it's it's horrible looking. And and then he he friggin' throws like a an axe into into Marty's chest. It's crazy. Like he messes them up and they barely get it all alive. Marty's about to get his head caved in with that axe, and then Russ blows Errol's head off. I think they did a great job of creating suspense, because it's like for a second you're like, oh man, are they going to get out of this? So they did a great job with that. And I like their relationship with the other detectives, because they suspect them. But in this episode, before they go there, Marty meets with the younger one, and he's like, we're on to something. And he's like, yeah, we've been been watching you in in that office. What are you guys even doing in there? What are you investigating? And he's like, (laughs) if we have something... Do you want the case? Do you want it? He's like, Yeah, give it to me. And that's who they call. And thank goodness they come eventually to save their lives and, you know, to put a bow on this investigation. And this serial killer is now killed. But unfortunately, like we talked about earlier, we have Rust in the hospital, Marty in the hospital. Thank goodness they both recover and, and survive. Rust watches the news and the Tuttle and Children's Connections has been completely dismissed by the powerful of Louisiana. And also, we have a really touching moment with. Marty in his hospital bed, where his family they <laughs> in the middle he's, he's giving me the middle finger right now. Ma- Maggie brings the kids to come see. Oh yeah, yeah, their father and her ex-husband, Marty, on in his hospital bed, which was, you could tell, a very moving moment for him because, you know he probably thought he was going to die, lo- lost everything, and he spent so many years reflecting on the mistakes of his past, of ignoring his, his children, cheating on his wife, ignoring his family. And really, this is what really truly matters to him in life. Yeah, because when he sees when he visits Maggie earlier, um, and he says he thanks her. He thanks her a couple times. He's basically saying thank you for raising the family. You can you get the sense immediately from how they speak that he hasn't even spoken to his daughters in maybe at least a couple of years. Like you can he, tell they probably don't want to talk to him. Yeah, like he he's not even involved in their lives in any way at all. Which is like he's he it's his fault. And so I think he when he breaks down in the hospital room, I thought it was a really powerful moment for that for the character. And Woody really knocked it out of the park in that scene. Yeah, we talked about earlier the uh, the scene of the wheelchair scene where Marty brings Rust outside, looks up to the sky, talking about darkness, and now it's light. And I love how Marty brings some cigarettes, and Cole's like, "Oh my God, they, <laughs> you remembered." <laughs> and he's like, "Get me out of here, just walk away." He takes him out of there. <laughs> it's a great conclusion to. A terrific season of television. And they have that light and darkness conversation. Mm-hmm. And Russ eventually says that it looks like the light is winning. So his, his character is transformed. And he also he thought about he, he wanted to die and he was ready to die. And he thought he could hear his daughter. Yeah, um, actually that was a great yeah. moment where he, he said he felt her love and he felt his father there as well. And there, it seemed like he said he felt they're waiting for me. hmm so but, it he ch- still, it probably but he still changes his entire perspective on life. Yeah, and now he's obviously going to still be weird as hell, but he's going to be less nihilistic, I think, going forward. Maybe he'll become a preacher. <laughs> He'd be a good one, honestly. He'd be a good one. But man, he'll probably still be a bartender. What an excellent show. What an excellent season, production, acting, writing. Everything about this show is masterful. You know, they don't really make TV like this anymore. It was kind of just a special diamond in the rough you could say of this century i think it's it, yeah it's very unique yeah i can't think of another show that's like because even in the detective genre there's nothing like it it's very special mm-hmm. and they try to replicate it and i'm sure they're going to do another season eventually of true detective season four i'm sure oh you didn't see the trailer oh is it coming well, who's in it uh jodie foster oh shit what yeah when's it come out this year this year yeah oh damn yeah jodie foster they she that. was in the she was in the hbo max sizzle reel they showed a couple shots of I didn't her know. yeah well now you do now i do well, sign me up. I love Jodie Foster. Yeah, I mean, she played one of the greatest detectives of all time in, yeah. te- in film history. Clarice. Clarice. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And ap- apparently, uh, from, what I, from what I read about it, I mean, this is just conjecture and rumor, but it's supposed to be really good this time. Well, this see, season. I heard season three is really good. I haven't seen season two three. I heard it was bounce three. back, yeah. Um, Mahershala is the lead in that. And then we had Colin Farrell, Rachel McAdams, and Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn in season two. I haven't watched that. I watched two episodes when it came out, and I was like, it's not that good. It just wasn't it was and like i said it was it was missing McCodahy. It doesn't have rust it doesn't have rust Rust Cole because this the show we've seen a thousand detective stories and we've seen a thousand serial killer stories but i think what really makes this this show so different and unique in its own thing really is the character of rust and the things and ideas that are brought up in this film in this series plus the the filmmaking is just so unique and fantastic and uh, visually stunning and, and impressive, and uh, it, it's so creative and artistic. It's still it's still pretty uncommon nowadays, and even in TV nowadays. I right. love it. That wraps our episode on True Detective season one. My voice is almost gone. Yeah, we already have a cold, and almost this almost at three hours right ooh, now. This is our one of our longest episodes. It's, it's up there, yeah. longest in a while. Um, thanks so much for tuning into this breakdown of True Detective season one. Become a patron of Raiders of the Lost Podcast today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Every patron gets access to a weekly bonus episode as well as the weekly chat, which is now exclusively for patrons. Minimum sign-up fee is $2. That's it. And you get access to so many awesome perks. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful day. See you next time. Or evening, or every whatever yeah, time it is whatever. in this episode. Yeah. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Later. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Kotching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much.